to imagine all life as you know it stopping instantaneously and every molecule in your body exploding at the speed of light. Total protonic reversal. Protonic reversal. Protonic reversal with your host, Conan Neutron. Broadcasting from a secret underground lair in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. A gigantic middle finger to everything that is rock about music, rock and roll, and cover power. The thing is, though, if you don't laugh, you're going to go on a killing spree with sharp and nails. Confidence of a hero or a fool, I wasn't exactly certain which. Could not be more professional. That's like a science thing, right? Indeed, indeed, indeed it is. It is a science thing. It's a science place. It's a scientific fact. We're all up in your face. It is time once again for the one, the only, Protonic Reversal. Welcome to it. Welcome to it. Welcome to it. Tonight's special episode. The Man from Flipper. That's, that sounds like that could be like a 60s uh, TV show, but <laughs> but it isn't. It's, it's, it's a statement of fact. Uh, Stephen DePace is coming up. So before that, let me just do this spiel that I have been told that I should be doing and will now do. Uh, so if this is, uh, whether you're a first time or a long time, welcome to Conan Neutron's Protonic Reversal. I am your host, Conan Neutron. I'm a rock and roll lifer who has toured and recorded for over 22 years, most known for the band Conan Neutron and the Secret Friends. Music is a huge part of my life, and I use the format of this very long-running podcast to talk about music with musicians whose work I enjoy and respect. Folks that may or may not be household names, but do something very special. This is episode 295. If this is your first time listening to the show, all of the archives are at and are always free, no ads, no sponsors, no kidding. And if you'd like to support the show and get episodes sooner, you can give $1 a month to patreon.com slash Reversal. And if you like the show, you're just a single episode, please feel free to share it along, like, subscribe, or post a review. All that helps people find the show, and it's just a darn nice thing to do. So without further ado, the man from Flipper, Mr. Stephen DePace. Welcome, sir. How goes? Conan. Conan. I'm so glad we're doing quite Conan, it, It's not quite Conan O'Brien, but it's better, right? <laughs> you know, there's a petition for me to replace James Corden. And uh, I think. Oh, by, I'd vote for that any day of the week. <laughs> by the that's ancient laws of Hollywood, Sunday. if it hits 1,000, they have to give it to me. So I think that's how awesome. that works, right? <laughs> uh, this is a pleasure, man. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a big right fan. On. And I've been, I've been uh, wanting to have uh, flipper representation on this show for years and years. And I tried to talk Ted into it. He wouldn't do it, but Hey, why not get the guy who's a better mouthpiece? Right. So, uh, yeah, yeah. super, super glad to have you, man. Uh, I, I love, let's just start off with the fact that I love how you named your most, most recent tour until the, until the wheels fall off. Until <laughs> I think the wheels fall off. <laughs> so and good. it was, I, I swear I came up with that first. And then I saw the, uh, Tony Hawk documentary. That's, called until the wheels fall off <laughs> it's just it's you just, know and i was like yeah i was like wait what 
you know, but some, anyway, sometimes you get like uh, something's in the ether or whatever, and you just hit the same thing at the same time. So uh, the point of me calling it kind of uh, tagging it uh, till the wheels fall off is from here on out, we're going to just play literally till the wheels fall off. So, you know, there's no telling if we come to your town, who knows if we'll ever be back again. It's like we're just going to go until, you know, one of us dies or something. I don't know. But we're just going to keep playing, you know, until they lock us up again with another COVID or, you know, we just retire, you know. So. Well, I think that's powerful, too, because I was thinking about this and it's, you know, it's, it's come up on this show before because I talked to a lot of different folks. But the idea that the type of rock and roll and when I say rock and roll, I'm, I'm talking about the type of rock and roll that includes weirdos. <laughs> right. It, it, we haven't had a generation that has like been quote unquote retirement age. It hasn't happened like this. This is a first. So the fact that there are so many awesome bands that, uh, you know, I never got the chance to see or that, you know, even folks even younger than me never got the chance to see. Right. Uh, that's great. That's a mitzvah. That's awesome. You know, let, let's put it this way. I saw the I saw the MC the MC fifty with um, Wayne Kramer and um, yeah yeah yeah. Brendan Canty was on drums and Billy Gould on bass. Uh, Kim Thiel right. on guitar. Uh, and the first thing I thought of is if I have that much energy when I'm seventy four or whatever, I'll feel pretty darn good yeah. about myself because that yeah, show yeah, kicked yeah. ass. <laughs> Listen, man. There's a bunch of us that are out there and we just refuse to stop. You know, it's like. The DKs are still out there yep. doing it, um, Flipper. Uh, and I just, last Friday night, went to go see Circle Jerks at the Palladium here in Los Angeles in Hollywood. Was that with Negative that, Approach? Did they play that one? Yeah, yeah. Negative Approach, Bouncing awesome. Souls, and Seven Seconds along with uh, Circle Jerks. And, you know, I mean, it, the whole show was just so high intensity, just high energy, high intensity. Some bands, what you know, when they get into their 70s they lose their energy factor yeah you know, their intensity their energy i mean look i love the rolling stones but they don't have nearly the intensity they used to have oh how could they um, yeah. <laughs> right, but right. i mean how, how can anybody but i mean it's like somehow or another the punk bands that are out there still doing it are still doing it you know yeah, like um, it still amazes me a former guest of the I mean, show the Keith. Cir- circle jerks did 33 songs that's what set list on Friday night, 33 songs. And it was high intensity, man. It was high energy. There was a massive, huge pit in the center. Um, the place was packed. There were thousands of people there. It was amazing. Well, and Keith Morris, former guest of the show, is pretty much a powder keg of energy generally. But to see him, you know, still catch air (laughs) the way he does and like, because it's so intrinsic to what that band was and con- continues to be. You know, it, it's awesome because it doesn't mean, like, you don't have to slow down necessarily. But what I think is interesting about Flipper is that, like, one of the things that you did is you slowed it down. And so it's sort of like, hey, you're yeah. kind of were thinking ahead to a certain degree. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, 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 the tempo of the music... Uh, the tempo of the songs were, and by the way, that was not contrived in any way, shape, or form. It was just quite literally, I've heard other bands say this too, and it's true. If you're really authentic and not trying to copy anybody or any other style of music or anything like that, 
when you get together, when Flipper first got together, we plugged in the amps. I sat down behind the drum kit and we just made noise and whatever came out, came out, you know, and, um, we never covered any song. Well, we did in the beginning, we covered for, for, for yucks. We covered, uh, super freak by, uh, <laughs> by uh Rick James, Rick James. Yeah. Rick James, bitch. <laughs> we covered Rick James and I, it was, told to me that one night he showed up we've had there's been several kind of episodes like this where the Mabuhai Gardens in San Francisco was like the CBGBs of the West Coast yeah absolutely and um uh everybody from all kinds I mean share all kinds of people went there in the heyday I mean you know share you name it I mean all sorts of people just would show up because it was place to be and punk rock was the thing at the time so anyway, uh, Rick James apparently showed up one night when we happened to be playing, and I was told that we and I we had no idea he was in the audience, and if it's even true, but uh, I like to think it's true. But yeah. we started to play that song, and he got up and left. You know, <laughs> that that's that's what was told to me, and, and that's it's great. believable. You know, yeah, yeah, know. of course, yeah. <laughs> I... But we used to play that song in the very beginning of our days. But anyway. Yeah, we I thought you were going to say he was know, came on stage with you, which would have been uh, that equally would have been believable. Even better. That <laughs> yeah. would have been even better. I mean, it's Rick James. But you know, all bets are Rick off. It's Rick James, man. Yeah. <laughs> but do you think that? Uh, yeah, but it always kind of seemed like you had your own thing that you were you were trying to accomplish. You were no one was ever going to accuse Flipper of trying to rip off other bands. I mean, you. That's for sure. <laughs> for That's better for or for sure. worse, right? I mean, not everyone yeah. was on board with it at the time. Yeah, and surprisingly enough, you know, like when the hardcore scene kicked in, which supposedly around 1980, um, San Francisco, I mean, the hardcore didn't really take too, too much. The rest of the country, L.A., oh, my God. But the hardcore scene with that style of music, right, we still somehow or another continued on through that whole style of hardcore we toured the country numerous times. We kept putting out records. You know, our first album came out 1982. You know, in the early to mid 80s, we were putting out records, and none of which were hardcore by any stretch. <laughs> by anybody's and, definition. But yet, we survived yeah. and thrived in this hardcore scene in the whole across the United States. Many of the groups that were on the bills with us from town to town to city to city were all like hardcore bands because that was the thing. Yeah, everyone is doing um, it, right? Yeah. And somehow, and we it it helped us, I think, having that style that we played, grunge, whatever you want to call it, grunge, punk, post-punk, whatever you want to call it. Um, I think it helped us because we really stood out. I mean, oh yeah, talk, you know black and white it was like total opposite ends of the spectrum you know but we still fit into that scene somehow some way i don't know how but i think our shows our performances our live performances had even though we weren't playing at 100 miles an hour we had the intensity intensity and, uh, yes and also uh it was um you, you never knew what was going to happen at a flipper show somehow or another like the the energy drew the people and the people were you know you just anything could happen it was 
from town to town, show to show, like anything could happen. So we had that reputation. There were even people that were called flipper haters and they were at every show, you know, yeah. and then they'd be bitching about it, you know, but they came to every show <laughs> for some reason. <laughs> and you still get their money, which is always nice. You know? <laughs> so, and they paid to get in too. Yep. Uh, I think there's a, isn't there a guy, was it the big boys? <laughs> I think they had a song, something about those, those lines, but yeah, I love the idea that, Punk rock didn't used to be a genre. It was more like an attitude, right? It, it wasn't like, here are these... It was an attitude as well as a genre and uh, a, a, a clothing style, too. Yeah. It changed in the 80s. It was a clothing... In the late 70s, I became aware... I really plugged into the punk rock scene in 1977. That's when I plugged into it. That's when I discovered it and joined the club. And uh, my first band was in 1978. Uh, so all of 77, I was going to the Mab, checking out shows, checking out the bands. Uh, there were a lot of artists of all kinds in the San Francisco music scene. Yeah. Uh, there were people that were into photography, doing video, doing film, painting, sculpturing, you know, all kinds of things and music, you know, as well. So that whole scene was, there was a lot of artists of all kinds. Um, and then there were people that became music journalists kind of on the spot, you know, and punk magazine, all these different magazines that came out. Yeah. Um, so there were people writing about the scene, posting pictures and so on and so forth. And um, it was a really kind of... Uh, What's the word terminology like? Like self-contained. Yeah, a I was self-contained scene that had all the elements that was in San Francisco, and um, then by contrast, in the late seventies, LA was the same thing. All the bands were different. All the bands were unique. In the late seventies, no one tried to copy anybody. And then uh, LA was the same way. There was a lot of different kind of bands. The weirdos, all sorts of bands. Um, that it were all different and fashion was part of it. Everybody for the most part were making their own clothes or, you know, buying clothes at thrift stores and so on and so forth. But the whole uniform of either shaved head, mohawk, the chains and all that stuff and the S and M stuff and all that, that sort of became the hardcore uniform. I guess there was a couple of different type of uniforms, but so many people looked the same, you know, right. they wore the uniform. That came with the hardcore scene. Music sounded the same, people dressed the same, somewhat, you know, everybody had a little bit different style, but it became more uniform as it went along into the 80s. I just remember the late 70s being far more varied in style of music, style yeah. of fashion, um, all that kind of stuff. And, well, um, so. I mean, look at look at the bands too. Like, I mean, for me, like when I first heard like y'all and the Minutemen, for instance, it's like okay, the Minutemen doesn't sound like Minor Threat, right? But they're they're both equally like fantastic, and they they do what they do incredibly well. And then it kind of yeah. seemed like, as you say, it kind of seemed like a rule book developed to a certain degree. To a certain degree, it did. A rule book did develop. Yeah. But meanwhile, Flipper was just being flipper you, you guys were fun. yeah <laughs> you guys were just doing whatever it is you wanted to do which yeah as i've which impressed me when i first heard flipper but also just as i've grown older I've, yeah, that's the way to be that's the way to be an artist is to, is to do what you do 
And then to see like the waves of influence, multi-generational influence of people, you know, taking inspiration from that, either directly in some cases or uh, just as more of a, you know, attitude kind of thing, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it it, it goes without saying that it's, you know, it's not necessarily going to pay you riches and riches and make you a millionaire or anything. But uh, I mean, culturally, I mean, Flipper's a very important band. Like, generic Flipper alone is, I mean, didn't they make yeah. it on one of those Rolling Stone lists or something, if I remember correctly? Like, yeah, it's it's made many different yeah, lists. Yeah, yeah. And it should. There was one, <laughs> one, came out, one came out recently, this month, the top 68 songs of the 80s. Oh, no, the top 68 albums of 1982. And there was a lot of records on there. We made the list. And there was like, that was the year Michael Jackson put out Thriller and Prince put out 1999. It was like all the different genres, like the most important records of that of that year. And Generic came out that year. Generic yeah. was on the list. Um, but yeah, um, yeah, it blows my mind to this day. Uh, we made that album kind of piecemeal over the course of about a year because... Um, we would go into the studio. We were working at the studio to earn studio time. We were we were doing labor down there. We right. were we were actually helping these guys who just purchased the studio. We were helping them remodel the whole studio, and uh, we would work and then build up. They were paying us in studio time, no cash, right? Right. <laughs> so um, so that was how we made that first record. We uh, we would work and earn some studio time and go in the studio and spend the time to make, you know, two couple, one or two or three songs or something, and then work some more and then do the same thing. And, you know, wash, rinse, repeat until we had enough songs for an album. So it was kind of a, you know, again, like I said, we would record one or two songs at a time. And so over the course of, over the course of, and you know what they say, and it's probably true about our album as well but everybody's first album is their best because all the songs that they worked on and you know spent um, years and years honing their craft on (laughs) yeah you would drop the bad ones as you went along and you by the time you record your first album you've got nothing but sort of your best material you know and you've played it rehearsed it played it at shows for years before you you know put it on tape you know so I don't know. There's that kind of thing where everybody's first album is their best, but I think it's um, true for a lot of bands. Yeah, I wouldn't say it's indeed. true for all bands, though. But uh, yeah. yeah, I, I do take uh, the I, point. <laughs> I love our second album too. Uh, people, we Gone Fishing, I think, has fantastic. Gone Fishing material. is very good. Yes, we played more with the production aspect of it. We played around more with the production aspect, so people in the day said it was overproduced was one of the critic critiques of the record but you know <laughs> yeah, it was just sure. us in the studio next time around a couple years later you know going in and we recorded a lot of material like i think we did 16 songs or something and eight of them came out on that record so we have another eight that we're going to actually put out so it's kind of gone fishing too but oh, it wow. might have a different yeah, still fishing. So that's that's gonna come out. Um, with it's got great material on it. 
uh, well, anyway. Well, I, but I, well, I do want to talk about that record because I think that record's underrated. But so I do want to talk about Generic also because, I mean, so at the time you had uh, – well, you, you, it was unique in the fact that you had both Bruce and Will uh, yeah. doing, doing bass, right? That's unique. Yeah. That was the magical lineup, man. That was the – in the early days, uh, you know, before personality clashes and all kinds of other – things happened or came into fruition or you know came into the mix or whatever the case might be in those early days in the 80s uh it was you know we were at our i think you know we were at a creative sort of peak during that whole time period you know and then there was many evolutions that came after that absolutely um yeah but uh the four of us being, you know, I don't know. We, yeah, it was it was a really creative time. The eighties were was a very creative time period, time frame. So how did what what was the first moment? Sorry, see, but what was the first moment in those early days where you knew you had something like really special? Where where it was like, hey, there's something really cool going on here. Did it happen early? It on? was. It was at the very beginning um, when. The, the original lineup was me and Will and Ted and this guy named uh, uh, Ricky. We called him Ricky Sleeper. He had previously been in a band from San Francisco called The Sleepers. They were a great band, really great band. Uh, Michael Belfer, who just recently passed away, was on guitar. Ricky uh, Williams was his name. Anyway, that band broke up, and then Ricky was available, and... I had previously been in Negative Trend, yeah, and that band broke up, and um, so we, you know, San Francisco, kind of everybody kind of knew each other and stuff, and so when people were available, every kind of everybody kind of knew about it. So we grabbed this guy Ricky, and we, you know, Will and myself had come from Negative Trend, and Ted had come from a couple of different bands that we had we had played with when I was in Negative Trend, for example. We had played with Ted and one of his previous bands. We all knew each other. So Ted was kind of the catalyst. He put it all together, grabbed me, grabbed Will, grabbed this guy, Ricky. And, you know, and we we got into a rehearsal studio and started making noise. And after two or three rehearsals, um, I remember we all looked at each other and went, well, this seems to be working out. We were writing original material right from the get go. And so we wrote a bunch of songs and after a handful of rehearsals and a handful of songs that we had written, we all looked at each other and went, well, this seems like it's going to work. You know, there's some kind of um, chemistry here and right. uh, the material's good and we're going to need a name. <laughs> so here you right. go. Here's the story of how we got our name. So Ricky Williams, who we, you know, Ricky Sleeper, um, he turned around when we said, uh, I believe, I'm pretty sure my memory is clear on this. Uh, Will Shatter turned around and suggested that we were going to need a name. And Ricky, and, we, and then there was like a moment of silence because I think everybody was like trying to come up with suggestions. To figure out what it's going to be, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know for myself, I was like, okay. And I was thinking, you know. And um, Ricky Williams uh, replied almost immediately after just a, 10 seconds of silence like he went how about flipper and we all like looked at each other and went okay we nobody had a better idea or any <laughs> other idea 
and uh, we just went okay. It sounded cool, you know. And were um, you guys familiar I with found, the Dolphin Show? Was that? Uh, a- yeah, yeah. We all grew up watching Flipper. Yeah. But we all found I found out many many years later that there was more than just that. It turned out that Ricky had, and this was confirmed by roommates who he lived with. He had a whole bunch of different pets: a bird a lizard, a cat, you know, you name it. He had a whole, a menagerie of pets. Sure. And they were all named Flipper. All of them. (laughs) So that, then it hit me like, well, that's why he wanted to call his band Flipper because he was kind of fucked up on a lot of drugs. It might've been the only name he could remember. (laughs) He could remember it. Yeah, exactly. And uh, we had to actually fire him after, I don't know, four, three, four, five months, somewhere between three and six months. We had to fire him because he was just so fucked up on drugs. He was, he was a no show. He was late. He was fucked up all the time. It's like one time this was classic. Uh, I, it was probably the last show we did with him before we fired him. But he took a mic stand, the straight up mic stand with the really heavy metal bottom. You know the oh yeah, like the show. big uh, the the round the round bottom. Yeah, one. yeah, the ones not you can really kinds, yeah, not the ones with three legs. Yeah, but yeah, the heavy round bottom. It's like heavy, heavy, some metallic you know, metal of some sort. Um, he took, he picked up the mic stand and started swinging it around like a lasso. Oh my God. And he hit Will Shatter square right between the eyes and knocked him out cold in the middle of the show. <laughs> and he had to go in an ambulance and everything. He was unconscious. He had a big cut right here, right, right between the eyes. You couldn't have hit him better if you had aimed for it like if he had a laser sight or something like yeah it just yeah. hit him perfect knocked him out and then he had a scar there for the rest of his life he had a big <laughs> scar right Jesus. between his eyes so i think that was uh the last gig we did with him and we had to fire him because he just you know anyway whatever but anyway we got bruce right after that and uh yeah i mean the chemistry was there Bruce and Will were writing great lyrics and coming up with killer bass lines, the two of them together. And, you know, so we had another unique situation where it was two singers, two bass players, not at the same time, but they would alternate back and forth, but they were contributing to writing material, both of them. And, um, you know, they would bring in a, one guy would bring in a bass line and we would build a song around it. Then whoever, wasn't playing bass would add lyrics to it so uh yeah so we had two lyricists and two bass players and drummer and guitar players so well and when where do you when does it kind of come in with the songwriting where you have that like that repetition because i'm i'm thinking about you know sex bomb is it's one of those songs that it's like louie louie or something right (laughs) you want to you want to know something let me just tell you like that song got great reviews generic album got great reviews but one of the reviews it's funny you said louis louis one of the reviews came from the boston globe Uh and whoever the rock critic was or whatever um he was he might have been reviewing the single sex bomb might have been reviewing the single which came out prior to the album coming out and it's a different recording but uh, anyway the single sex bomb um, he was reviewing it, and he he said it was um, 
Louis Louis boiled down to a burnt pot. <laughs> well, sure, because I mean, it's an so, yeah. exercise in repetition, right? There's what, like seven and, words and in the whole were, song? Yeah, I mean, and, I get and there it. were thousands of bands around the world that covered that song. Thousands I, of bands. I mean, it, so it, it, was, it was the garage band. It was, it was tailor made for garage bands to cover that song, you know? I, I mean, when I play bass. It's one of the first things I start playing because it's just such it's such an easy but like cool like effortlessly cool bass line and it's yeah. there's something to be said for that right I mean like yeah yeah there's a reason why kids start when kids play they play smoke on the water you know like, <laughs> it's, yeah. it feels good but like with that song especially it's just the absurdity like the the level that it goes to I mean it's, so oh and and so it's not since we're talking about sex bomb specifically. It's it's you, it's the synth snare. It's the sign air, right? That's that yeah, weird thin air, yeah. That weird sound, yeah. Like where yeah, it, it's like, right. <laughs> like I can't do that. Was I think I think that was one of the first drum electronic drum of any yeah. sort. It was a it was a synthesizer. It was a synthesizer, um, but it was just a single pad like that big with dials all around it, where you could adjust all the different things. I used to have and, one. And this is years before I found punk rock, but I used to have one because I went to like a thrift store after they were out of vogue. Wasn't listening to anything cool. Wasn't like in punk rock or anything. And I was like, wow, what's this? This looks cool. And I was like, oh, it makes this yeah. crazy noise. That's awesome. Yeah. 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 Uh, but it's I was I remember I was very excited. And I heard I heard it. Uh, it was the kind of, you know, before the days of everything being on the Internet, I heard it from. A fellow music fan is like, oh, did you know that that's a sign error? Because it's, yeah, okay, cool. You know, like, oh, I used to have one of those. Cool. But I always wonder for years, like, what does that sound? There's, like, that crazy, yeah. like, I'm not going to do it justice if I try to do it. But it's, like, this really. Yeah, right. <laughs> this is nuts. I mean, there's that great sax line. To, it's just, like, more and more instruments come in. It just gets But it's also yeah. exactly the same the whole time. And those sax players were amazing, too. Uh, the two guys that did it. Uh, they stood out in the hall. They came in cold. We we got these guys to come in, and That's we were awesome. in the studio working on that song. And they came in, and they heard the bass line and the, what we had recorded so far. Yeah. We, they listened to it. They went out in the hallway, and they rehearsed it, the two of them together. And they both recorded, two guys recorded simultaneously. I think it was two different saxophones. Saxophones, but, you know, there's alto and tenor all the whatever they are i think there were two different ones but um man together they, they didn't know each other or anything they came in and That's just awesome. nailed it <laughs> just oh my found God. the vibe immediately it. yeah like, it was I mean... one of those one of those moments in time and then if you listen to the album version <laughs> and the, the the saxophones are just jamming on and yeah, on and on they just go and, uh, they're just going for yeah a while. <laughs> and, the, and the jazz improv and stuff going yeah. on and that's it's incredible yeah well it always occurs to me all the times that i've seen flipper play and all the various incarnations i've seen of flipper it's always like it's a party when that song comes on right like it's yeah, everyone yeah. is is just like getting loose in their own very specific ways and it's 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 yeah. it's just such a unique thing that you know if you think about it from like more of an academic perspective one wouldn't necessarily expect flipper to have a party vibe but it absolutely <laughs> that song is a party and it's in a very specific yeah. way that's yeah. notable like and and again a song that can take you like 
10 seconds to learn how to play, play but a lifetime to master, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, and then I also, and I don't, I want to get beyond just talking about Generic Flipper, but I find that record so interesting that I also love that, you know, there's, you know, life is the only thing worth living for. Like, it's it's like not just yeah. a bummer thing. And, and, and when I first heard it, because I heard it as a young man, I was like, are they being ironic? I was like, oh, no, no, I think they're actually being, I think this is a sincere song. Like it's just funny because yeah, yeah, yeah. there's like it's there's, like the total you know, dichotomy. <laughs> yeah, way of the world is like yep. you know all these terrible things that can happen, and you know, you know, and, and, and that's the way of the world. Blah blah blah. And then life is the only thing worth living for. Is the you know the positive side of that coin? You know. Yeah. Um, there's another one. Life is cheap. You know, yep. on that record and stuff but yeah i mean there's there's um definitely uplifting songs on that record as well but yeah life is the only thing worth living for i mean that's just uh, i mean who thinks about saying it in that way it's like it's I, crazy I, I would have never thought of that yeah but it's so it's so simple and it's so true that's it life is the only thing worth living for it's kind of an ironic kind of statement but it's like Anyway, whatever. It's, yeah, I mean, it's, do you have a moment brilliant. where you're just like sitting playing brilliant. the drums and like, what is he? What? What's he singing? Like, what? Yeah. <laughs> what is that? Like, do you have that Man, moment? I, I, I got to tell you too. I've there's been, I've many, many, many times I've had people come up to me, either in person or communicating with me over the internet or whatever it might be, who've said that that song saved their life. One guy told me he, awesome. he was a, a store clerk. I had a record store. It was a store clerk at a record store. And he told me that one of his customers came in the store and I guess told him, I think generic was playing on the, at the record store. It was like a little record store somewhere. And I think life is the only thing worth living for was playing over the speakers or something like that. But this customer related a story to the shopkeeper who then told me about it. And the guy said he was about to kill himself. He was about to hang himself or something. And oh, wow. that song came on, or he put on generic album or something because it was his favorite record. And he was about to hang himself while listening to his favorite record. And that song came on and he decided not to kill himself. And he was alive to this day or whatever. So, That's amazing. And I've heard, I've heard so many, uh, literally so many people say that that song or that record or Flipper in general save their life you know and stuff it's pretty heavy to hear that kind of stuff it's like wow well okay yeah i mean that's that's amazing right i mean that's that's the power yeah. of music that's the power of art to to change people's lives uh fundamentally yeah really i mean it probably wasn't the first thing you had in mind when you're when you were banging it out no, but... <laughs> it, no it wasn't <laughs> no it was not but, did, hey, if whatever works, whatever works, yeah. I mean, and, and you know, I'm thinking about in in terms of like all the various bands that have like covered songs from from that record. I mean, obviously, you know, Melvin's obviously L7. They did I mean, they did a mashup at some point, if I remember right, with the uh, Black Sabbath song, if I if I remember correctly. Like, yeah, there's been countless bands, so uh, many. Nirvana. Didn't R.E.M. I think R.E.M. even covered it. Yeah, yeah I mean, like, <laughs> like it's it's something where. Flipper managed to become part of like the tapestry of like weird music in a very ha, was way. another band, another song. Ha ha was another song that's been covered a million times. 
It's been covered um, a million times in my head because I hear it once and I'm here for the next three days going on endless repeats. Yeah, and there's some good <laughs> covers of it too. Uh, uh, I'm trying to think of this band from New York that did a great job on it, recorded it. Um, uh, I can't think right now. But anyway, yeah, there's been so many different covers of it. You know, for years and years during the 80s, we heard about this band that was from Chicago and they called themselves Flipper Jr. And they were a flipper cover band. Really? Yeah, and they existed in Chicago. We heard about them for years. Finally, it wasn't until the the early 90s, maybe 1992, we were touring with Guar, and we played a big theater in Chicago. That's awesome. And these kids came up to us and said, we're Flipper Junior, and we were like, whoa. I've been hearing about you guys for years. Yeah. Uh, But yeah. How was the Guar crowd? Did they uh, did they buy what you're putting down? You know, uh, that was an amazing tour, super memorable. We did like five or six weeks with them across the United States, and it was like running away with the circus. I mean, <laughs> seriously. I believe it. was it. like I believe running it, yeah. away with the circus. <laughs> I mean, Flipper was a circus on its own, but Guar was a whole nother level. Oh, yeah. Um, they were incredible. It was so fun. It was a great... Uh, match us and them um and uh yeah we won their crowd over it was definitely their crowd that was coming to the shows but you know we won them over um yeah it was pretty fun and quite adventurous those so did you feel going before the record so uh like the love canal seven inch and stuff like that those 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 first those first couple sorees into the world did you feel like you were kind of screaming into the darkness a little bit or did it feel like you know oh th- we just no. made something rad okay there was a there was there was a scene that was already there across the country yeah. and uh we we stepped into it you know and um uh it was a pretty healthy scene um you've probably heard rollins talk about it i mean there were in those in all through the 1980s touring across america we hardly stayed in hotels or we couldn't afford it you know and uh it was, it, you know, we would get paid just enough to get to the next town and yeah. survive from town to town, put gas in the truck and, you know, make it to the next town. But we stayed on people's floors and couches and all across America. There was a there was a scene that was pretty cool. And all of our shows were, I think we have Jello Biafra in part, in major part, I think, to thank for this. But uh, he talked a lot about Flipper. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. As being his favorite band and this and that. Um, and they toured the States before we did. So they they got out across the United States, out into the world before we did. And in all of the press, radio interviews, press interviews, you know, they wanted to find out who's Jello's favorite bands were. And of stuff. course, and he yeah. would always yeah. name Flipper. <laughs> so awesome. when we came behind them and toured America, all of our shows were packed. Because people and, wanted and to see what was, it was about. This yeah. was before, <laughs> sure. I mean, this was before generic. It was really on the string. Of, that we had about Sex Bomb Baby was definitely Ha Ha. Yeah, Ha Ha. You know, Getaway. Yeah. Um, and uh, so on the strength of those singles and Jello spreading the word, every one of our shows across the United States was sold out. Not bad. Except maybe one or two. You know, there Not was bad. one in New Orleans. That was really, I've recently come across people that were there on our probably, I don't know if it was the very first tour, but one of the early tours across America, 
Prince was playing in New Orleans the same night as our show. And so lots of people, most everybody went to go see him. And there weren't too many people. There was about 100 people at our show. And we had started getting drunk at Soundcheck with the bartender introduced us to kamikazes, which none of us knew about. Okay. And we were drinking kamikazes from Soundcheck onward. And by the time our time to play, you know, many hours later, we were all pretty shit-faced on kamikazes. (laughs) And we weren't playing too well. And uh, most of the audience left. And the people who remained were the real hardcore flipper fans. Oh, yeah. And we ended up giving them our instruments, and they played (laughs) our song. And we went to the bar and drank more. (laughs) And we're watching, you know, a bunch of people on stage, like, playing in in lieu of us, right? We're at the bar. That was one (laughs) hell of a night. I could spend an hour and a half telling you about what happened that night, but... Uh, the the shit that happened after the show was crazy. Really, I mean yeah, that's oh that's God. pretty crazy as it stands. Wild. I mean, were, and were they playing like flipper songs or were they just kind of yeah? Oh, okay, yeah, they were playing flipper songs. Great, you can just sit back and hang out and enjoy the show, I guess. <laughs> and like uh, every once in a while, I'll post a memory of that on Facebook, and I get people responding, going, "I was there, fucking right. a, I was there." You know, you that's gave amazing. us all the instruments. They knew, like they were, yeah. they were, you know. Um, <laughs> And then there was another, uh, 1982, we got to play, this was crazy, we got to play, um, believe it or not, we got to play Studio 54 in New York. <laughs> Flipper. Yeah, can you, can play you believe Studio that? Play Studio 54. Yeah. Incredible. Now, we, it was, uh, the way we got in was, the way we got to play there was, uh, it was a benefit that was being put on by this group called white columns it was an art group an artist group uh it was a gallery called white columns art gallery and they threw uh, i don't know how they got into studio 54 but they threw a five day long series of benefit concerts to benefit them right but we all got paid but you know i guess they were taking a piece of the action for their their own benefit and that was uh along the along during that we played the final show the the big closing ceremony and uh but earlier earlier in the week beastie boys played too i i've seen the roster of all the different bands that played and it was there back when they were a punk band yeah 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 i was Uh, gonna say they a lot of people don't know that's how they started they started as a punk yeah they were they were a punk band back then so they played during that week and then anyway, this was crazy. So I'll briefly tell you the story. So we we play the big final event, and it's packed, and a lot of people there in black tie and all kind of stuff. And and we they asked us when we came in, where do you want to play? Where do you want to set up and play? Because it was a disco, so there wasn't really a proper stage. Yeah, you know? it's not really made for and, live performance. And they, they, they said we could set up anywhere we want. And we looked up, and we saw this drawbridge that was above the dance floor. It was a drawbridge that was on a track. So I guess it moved or whatever. So we go, we want to play up there. So we got set up up there. We sound checked and everything. And we, and the the DJ booth was just to my right. And uh, anyway, we kind of had to set up linear because it was like a drawbridge. It wasn't a, you know, wide area. It was long and narrow. Yeah. So anyway, uh, we started playing at showtime 
And, you know, they were serving wine and beer in these plastic cups, you know, at the event. And people were throwing the cups up uh, up in the air at us, you know, like, I think it was, uh, you know, they, they it wasn't mean or anything. They were just, you know, getting getting into it and everything. And they were throwing cups up there. And um, <laughs> At the drawbridge that you're performing yeah, so on. Yeah, so the right? management <laughs> lost their minds, man. They lost their minds. They were like, what the fuck? And so they... After two or three songs, they shut us down. Yeah, shut down the power, shut off the PA, and there was oh um, a big giant guy to my left, a big huge uh, security guy. That I looked to my left and I saw this guy with his hand around Bruce's neck oh like God. that, and he he was yelling at him in his face. He said, "If I, I heard him say, he goes, if you sing another note, I'm going to take your head off." You know, like, and then I looked to my right, there was the, the DJ over there and he was like, this is a disco. What are you guys doing? <laughs> and anyway, they literally prior to us playing, they treated us like rock stars. The staff, they didn't know who we were. They right. treated us like rock stars. It was like, what can we get you? Anything you want. They were bringing in liquor bottles of all kinds. <laughs> it was, you know. And then when when they they literally kicked us out the back door. Different scene by the time down, you were done playing. Yeah. They they literally <laughs> kicked us out the back door. They all of wow. our us and our equipment was put out the back door. And <laughs> and. Um, and that's the, the, that's the, the flipper way there. That, I mean, that was awesome, man. We that's how we ended the whole, you know, benefit thing. It was great. Talk about a disco inferno. Huh. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> did you find though that did you did you find that you would have a lot of extreme reactions, right? Like the people would have like an extreme positive reaction, but some people especially before you guys sort of blazed that trail of there being, you know, this certain kind of music that it must've seemed like it was coming from Neptune or something to some people <laughs> and people don't always react well to that kind of thing. So did you, did you find you got a, no, we didn't, uh, there were, like I said, there was haters. I don't know who there were, there were, there were purists. There were hardcore purists right? who would, like I said, come to our shows, but they would always, talk a lot of shit like the in fact an article came out in the san francisco one of the san francisco newspapers and the title of which was the hated flipper and uh it, you know it only if you're talking about uh, studio 54 never, really, <laughs> never never bothered us or you know it didn't really i mean we were loved people loved yeah, us. Yeah. people we were i mean if there was a few people here and there who said they hated us or whatever for whatever reason I think they were just hardcore purists. Yeah, you know, they, they, they. We were, you know. I spoke to a guy, really nice guy. His name is Joe Sib, and he told me Joe Sib is a well-known guy. He owns he owns a, a record company called Side One Dummy, and he's on the radio and stuff. He's a well-known guy. Um, anyway, he told me one time. He goes, "Look, man, I used to come see you guys at the On Broadway in San Francisco." Yeah. He goes, "I I, I brought my he was a skater kid." So he brought his skateboard and he's like, I'd be listening to you guys. And, you know, I'd be trying to like, he wanted to be hardcore, like, you know, and he, <laughs> he just couldn't, there was, the tempo wasn't there. Wasn't there. You know, to his, to his liking. <laughs> so he's like, I think you guys are all great as people, but I just can't get into your music, man. It's too slow. You know, like, 
That's hilarious. So there were those hardcore purists, you know, who like just had to have that million mile an hour tempo going, you know, but whatever. Like what? I said, 99% of the people we came across loved us. And there was, for whatever we lacked in speed of the songs, we made up in intensity and, um, you know, uh, uh, what's the word? Just like anarchy just fucking madness going on in the crowd and character too because also you can you can draw a distinction between what you aren't right and so then by that same token it's like the people that you do draw like the genuine freaks or into it are generally going to be like at least interesting you know yeah yeah hopefully you know hopefully not not a threat but i I mean like for me like having you know quickly had the path of you know finding all the hardcore bands and you know having having getting into that and then when I first heard it like I was fascinated I was like I don't understand who made this music or why they made this music but I can't wait to hear more of it and that was like yeah. my immediate reaction and but I could see where someone would would potentially get weird about it or get hostile because it must, again there just wasn't anything like that happening that's that's the that's the thing Ted's guitar yeah. just how Ted plays guitar. Like his yeah. sound, all of it. Like, there's who play guitar? Yeah. Nobody play guitar like that. Forget it. So, a, a friend of mine just sent me a link. I got to listen to it, but it's a, an interview with Chris Novoselic being interviewed by somebody. I don't know. I got to listen to this thing. I haven't heard it before. But in this interview, he says that Ted Falcone is the Jimi Hendrix of rhythm guitar. Um, Ted is extreme, and, and rhythm because. Ted, Ted describes what he does as rhythm and noise. I asked him, I go, Ted, how would you describe your guitar playing? He goes, rhythm and noise. You yeah. Know? Yeah. So, I mean, that's really accurate. You know, no, it's, it, it's he, very play, much he plays so. yeah. very rhythmically and with lots of distortion and lots of noise. I'll tell you, I've heard him in record in the recording studio when you, uh, when you start mixing your songs, you isolate each and every instrument. Yeah, and you play with the sounds and the tones and all that, and uh, when you isolate Ted, I mean it's brain damage. <laughs> when you isolate Ted, it makes it sounds- what what you're hearing makes no sense. Yeah, it sounds and like attacking brain, wasps or something. Like your it's brain like, yeah. is really going. Your brain can't fucking figure it out, and <laughs> right. and and it, it only makes sense when you bring in all the other instrumentation. Yes. You know, when you bring in the bass and drums, then. What he's doing makes sense in your head, you know, but um, it's amazing. He's definitely the most unique guitar player I've ever come across or heard in my life. I mean, I would say uniqueness, definitely. Um, no one knows what the hell he's doing. I don't think he knows what he's doing. But but that's the key. That's the key. Whatever it is, it's correct. You know, it's the correct thing. Yeah, for it, whatever it is, it works. Yeah. And, uh, and he's. He's actually a classically trained musician. He was classically trained on piano, I think, and maybe synthesizer or something. Yeah. But um, he has no formal training on guitar. He picked up the guitar and he said when he heard the sound coming out of an electric guitar, it just changed his life. You know, he picked, he was hanging out with one of the mutants, a band from San Francisco called the Mutants. Yeah, yeah. And he he said that the guy had a guitar or whatever. He they knew each other from art school. Ted comes from an art school background. Yeah, yeah. And um, he picked it up, plugged it in, turned it on, and started just making noise, you know. And 
um, he said, wow, I just love this sound, you know. So he just taught himself how to play. Yeah, I mean, he, he knows chords and things. He knows the notes and the chords. He knows what they're called. This is an A, this is a C, this is a D. He knows that stuff. But everything else is just, he's just winging it. Well, he's, he he, he's an example I use of, of someone who's an autodidact on guitar. Like who has who developed their own style because they basically just taught themselves. Hey, this yeah. sounds cool and when I do he this. Taught is, he's he's <laughs> completely different from everybody. Like There's anyone else who's like ever it. learned guitar, they start out by like I mean me myself. When I was a kid, I took some guitar lessons and some piano lessons and some drum lessons. Yeah, at like summer camp and shit, right? And um, I remember, you know, you get an acoustic guitar and you strum. They teach you songs like. <laughs> popular songs yeah, you know yeah, like yeah. whatever it might be and you learn the chords and you learn how to play that way not ted nope. no way <laughs> you could ask him to play the whatever song like everybody knows and he won't know how to play it you know right. it's like it's not uh, his deal but but what he can do is something no one else can and that's the trade-off yeah exactly yeah that's fa that's fascinating i, I think that uh um, he, he is a noise he's a noise factory no, he is. I mean, and like, I can't think of someone else. There's very few people I can think of that were so musical in their noise. I mean, Roland S. Howard in the birthday party, sure, like in a different way. You know, some of the Sonic Youth stuff is, is fantastic, but like, he's uniquely tuneful and atuneful at the same time. And you said something very important that within the context of what everything everyone else is doing is where it makes sense. That's where it makes sense, yeah. And that's, you know, I mean, it may sound obvious, but that is such, that's so key that it's, it's, it's part of the insanity. Yeah. Right? I mean, apparently there was a, um, I heard about this or read about this some years ago, but there was a, a university study that they, uh, they, they, they tested, um, they had people's, they tested brain waves mm -hmm. um, of people while listening to various well-known guitar solos oh okay sure yeah and, and and they were looking for if any guitar solos actually caused any sort of brain damage <laughs> and they the number one song that caused brain or the solo the guitar solo that caused literal brain damage was keith richard's guitar solo for that he did in uh, sympathy for the devil oh man that's a great and, solo but, yeah <laughs> but and that's a great solo but they ain't never heard no Ted. Yeah, I was gonna say they, that, they clearly they're they're uh... yeah Ted Ted would have made <laughs> yeah, Keith it. sound like Mary Poppins. You know, it was like <laughs> we had to change the scale after we. I've heard, heard Ted isolated <laughs> in the studio, and it's something else. Yeah, man. yeah, sure. I mean, it's it's like yeah. legit bonkers in the best possible way. Uh, yeah. Can you, uh, Steve? Can you tell me about Emerald Cities? I know that uh, there's. I, the I film? saw that. Yeah, I saw that so, uh, some years back. I know that's after Generic Flipper, right? And I remember the the th reason why I saw it is because you I guys were it, in it. I think it came out in I don't know when was it eighty three maybe early eighties. I don't know. Yeah. I, I forget when it came out. Hold on, I can. I think I, I have the I have the VHS tape here somewhere, but I saw anyway, it in the yeah, video I, store. Eighty three is what uh, is apparently okay. So yeah, that would have been after Generic that it came out. Yeah. Um, I got it because of you guys. I got it because I was like, someone's like, "Hey, Flippers in this movie." So really? it was a oh, friend cool. of Ted's. Uh, Rick Schmidt was the filmmaker. It was a friend of Ted's. You know, like I said, Ted came from art school. He knew a lot of all sorts of different people. And like I said, in the scene, there was all kinds of different people: filmmakers, photographers, 
writers, all kinds of artists. Yeah. So he was from the Bay Area or San Francisco, and uh, Ted helped him write the film, and Ted appears in the film. And, um, you know, it's a story about Santa Claus being assassinated on the streets right. of San Francisco. Yeah, yeah that dude's stuck in the sand suit. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and and, and you know, what, everything that leads up to that, you know. Yeah. And there's, um, I mentioned the mutants a little bit ago. Flipper and the mutants both appear playing live, performing live in the in the film. And we decorated the set to, be look, like, to look like Christmas. And uh, it, we shot it at... Um, target video uh joe reese was another trailblazer he was the only guy around with a video camera in the early late 70s These target videos man i I still have 19 i i have a sorry but i've got a bench that is like uh you open it up and you have storage inside and it's full of the vhs tapes that i chose to keep and all of the target videos are like one yeah. whole section. I mean, he was the only guy doing that. He, he had was the only camera. guy. <laughs> he, he shot everybody that came through San Francisco, bands from New York, London, all the San Francisco bands. He shot everybody at all the clubs and put those videotapes out, those VHS tapes out. And they went around the world. Yeah. Um, before anybody. Before could, YouTube, before. <laughs> Like yeah, any but, of that but stuff, also right? before anybody really could tour, like it, yeah, it took us a while. It took us it took us a long time to be able to go to Europe and tour, right? And the, all those tapes were over there already, had been for years. So when we went there, eventually, ten years after that, you know, I think, well, we went to Europe for the first time in 1991, you know, and we had been around for 12 years at that point. Yeah. And it was our first tour to Europe, you know, but (laughs) in part because of his tapes floating around there for years and years, people who knew knew who we were. And uh, so um, anyway, we shot at his studio, his production facility. Uh, and then they shot the film all over San Francisco and Death yeah. Valley. There, there was some yeah, yeah, the desert, yeah, yeah, Death Valley, absolutely, yeah, yeah. I remember that well. And and Ted looks great in that film. He's oh, yeah. a real character in that film. He yeah. plays himself. Yeah, and that was that his red Pinto wagon that was in that film that he was driving. That was his car. Oh, that's funny. And that was the first <laughs> flipper vehicle. Like, I had a motorcycle at the time. And we used to shove all of our gear into that Pinto station wagon and, you know, play shows around San Francisco. Um, my drum kit, his amps. I mean, it was, yeah. Sure. Amazing. And then, uh, anyway, so. Well, and then, um, so, so after, so after that, pretty close after that, I think was, uh, was gone fishing, right? Like that's, that, that's when you did the, the second records around that same time period. We recorded the second record probably in 83, you know, like I said, so we recorded generic up through, I think it was maybe July of 82 and then it came out soon after. And then, uh, so sometime in 1982, it came out and then we went into the studio again in 83 and continued recording and, uh, and then Gone Fishing came out in 84. Um, so yeah, I mean, again, a real creative time for us. We wrote a lot of material during those couple of few years and then we followed up with, uh, 
a live record called Public Flipper Limited. Which, which I do want, I do want to talk about, but I don't want to uh, short sell Gone yeah. Fishing because I think Gone Fishing is an interesting record. Uh, that's the yeah. one, you know, the light, the sound, rhythm, the noise. It's got sacrifice. Like I mean, yeah. I mean, there's, there's yeah. underrated. Like as much as right. I think, I, like I appreciate the generic flippers on all the list, and I agree it should be there. But like I think that that's, you know, I, I think almost, yeah, I, I call it Gang of Four syndrome. <laughs> which that like everyone loves that first Gang of Four record. I love that first Gang of Four record. But Solid Gold is just as great, and it's like you know far lesser known amongst people that aren't you know total music nerds. Kind of the same thing yeah. about Gone Fishing, uh, frankly. So where we as a band, yeah. where were you guys at creatively at that at that moment in time? I mean, you again, you still have Bruce and Will doing bass. That, I mean, but yeah. there's like also, I mean, there's like congas and stuff on the record. There's like a bunch of like yeah, <laughs> we experimented a lot. Yeah, I I I did. You know, like I said, I took piano lessons as a kid, but I don't remember nothing about it. You know, whatever. Yeah. There was a keyboard there, and um, I I wanted to do I wanted to do something, so I found a couple of notes on the keyboard that went along with whatever the song was. I forget. I, I think I put keyboard on one or two songs, but I just found a couple of notes. I don't even know what the notes were, right. and uh, I couldn't <laughs> name if I name them if I had to. These ones seem I, fine. I, I yeah. felt like I just, so I was just. <laughs> I was one fingering a couple of notes. Yeah. And then there was a whole bunch of um, percussion instruments all over the studio. And we gathered all those up. And I layered this one song called Kali, yeah. which is this a- epic song. And I layered it with tons of percussion. And um, yeah, so in that, during the Gone Fishing sessions, we were looking to really experiment with whatever was laying around the studio and and also all the production gear, like the, the the post-production gear that was in the studio that we could use to mess with sounds and things and add echoes and delays and all that kind of stuff and layer the layer the vocals. And anyway, yeah, we played around with all that stuff and uh, just, you know, experimented with everything and found things that sounded cool. And even back then there was, I mean, almost, limitless different things you could do now it's even more so but even back then there were these the beginnings of digital um, equipment that i mean we recorded completely analog maybe i'm wrong maybe these things were analog but they were these things with dials and knobs and yeah yeah they were control at least analog control i'm not i'm not talking about the console that's a whole nother thing but there was they call it outboard gear which is like racks of racks of special equipment that yes. made special uh almost like special effects that's what they were compressors and distressors and reverb yeah. yeah but also here's the fun thing too in that analog age uh for example when we uh on sacrifice there's a uh, a sound of um marching and stuff like that yeah. and, and 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 on sex bomb the the live version of the the single <laughs> version of sex bomb there was a lot of different sound effects broken glass yeah there's all accident, kinds of crazy stuff in there you know? yeah <laughs> yeah so you know where those sounds came from they had a library of sound effects and the library was 12 inch vinyl album oh wow with, Okay. There was a there there would be an album of marching sounds, an album of car <laughs> crashes, an album of 
glass breaking, an album of screams. And we would pick and choose from a from vinyl records. Vinyl yeah, sound effects got, records, yeah. <laughs> that's where we got all the sound effects from. It was a straight up analog age. Uh, and that's we beautiful. always recorded to tape, two inch tape. And uh, yeah, you, if you wanted to retake something, you had to rewind it. And Redo it. <laughs> there was if you wanted to edit, you had to sp- take a razor blade and slice the tape, and then find where your edit's going to be, and then scotch tape the two ends yep. together with scotch tape. Yeah, and when, then, when we're know, talking about cut and pasting, we're talking about literal cut and pasting here, not like yeah, on a computer. Those, <laughs> those days were amazing. They were amazing. Yeah. Did you feel that that record? We, oh, go ahead. Oh, uh, the way you created an echo. Now everything's digital, but there were literal echo chambers in the studio. Yeah, yeah. yeah I remember yeah. where the studio we worked. They had three different echo chambers. They were different sizes, so they gave you a different echo effect, right? And so you'd uh, you'd switch between all three echo chambers. The way it worked was they had a speaker in this chamber up in the ceiling or something wherever they were and then they had a microphone so they had a speaker and a microphone so the speaker would send whatever sound into the echo chamber it would echo and then the microphone picked it up and sent it back to the to the recording console that's awesome and that, it was it's a, a real echo like it's crazy right but well and everything's that's... digital now you it's studio you can do magic. All that on your laptop. Yeah, exactly. I could, I could, I could just you know click, click, and there we go. We're recreating that now, and to a certain degree, like that's amazing. And I'm, I'm down for the like the non gatekeeping aspect of it, but also, I think there's analysis paralysis, right? Like you have too many options, then like you can kind of. Yeah. It also isn't I as special. Like it should, it should, it, it should have to work a little harder. <laughs> Even back in those days, there were so many options. It was making yeah. head spin, you know, but it was all in your imagination. Yeah. There was, like I said, there was a lot of different things available in the day, equipment wise. But, you know, the, again, there was a lot of it was your imagination. Like you, we would do like reverse echoes where yeah. you would run the tape, run the tape backwards. Like you would record it, record the echo and then cut the echo out of the tape, turn it around right. and it, run it back. Get that weird. And you get a reverse. Gotta, echo. Yeah. 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 I mean, there's all kinds of, yeah, we did that a few times on, I think I remember doing that on a snare. I don't, I forget what song, but you would get that reverse sound on a snare, which was pretty cool, but it took a lot to make those things happen. Now you just push a button, you know, but anyway, I, I I wanted so th- uh, thank you for talking to me about that one. I also do want to talk about public flimmer, uh, public yeah. flipper, <laughs> limited yeah, because limited. because yeah. I think that's a that was actually the that was actually the second flipper record that that I uh, glommed onto. Second one you got? Yeah, yeah, and that and that's cool. uh, to to me. Yeah, that's there's a, a great story behind that as well. Like the way that album came to be in terms of the the songs. Uh, there's a lot of songs on that record. It's a double album. Uh, double vinyl record and uh well and like there's like a we, 10 minute version of sex bomb too i remember that distinctly yeah <laughs> because um, why wouldn't you right so so ted uh had a uh sony it was a professional um 
Sony cassette recorder, right? Okay. It was a stereo cassette recorder. This was in the early 80s, too. It was really fucking cool. It was very compact. It was very small. But it was a professional-grade record stereo recorder yeah so it, it came with um a stereo microphone right an external microphone it had to be it wasn't wireless it had to be plugged in so we would and you and it recorded onto regular cassettes right so um we went across the united states and i think that record says it's limited from 1980 to 85 public flipper limited right. between 80 and 85. <laughs> yeah. So there were live recordings between those years. And um, so whether it was playing in San Francisco or touring around the country, Ted always recorded all of our shows on this little Sony deck. Right. And we would put it by the sound uh, sound guy, the soundboard and hang the microphone from the roof or the right. ceiling or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And it and it picked up basically just the room noise. And whatever was coming out of the PA went into this microphone, not directly through any wires, but literally through the air from the speakers into the microphone. Yeah, as, as if and you that, were just an audience That whole member. record. <laughs> yeah. That whole record is just that. And um, so, and then the concept for the album cover design uh, you know, we, we came up with this idea of having that because it came from touring across America, we came up with the idea of, we all knew the game of life. You know, we'd all yeah. grown up as kids. You, you can be a life. winner at the game of life. Yeah. I'm, yeah. <laughs> so your game piece moves around the board and you mm -hmm. pick cards, consequence cards. And so we came up with this idea. Let's have it be a map of the United States. Let's do a game board with game pieces and a spinner and people could literally play the game. Right. <laughs> and uh, you roll dice and you get, you move and you get consequence cards. There were good ones and bad ones. And, and they were all based on our experiences on tour, you know, right. like <laughs> truck runs out of gas, get a flat tire, you know, whatever. Fundamentalist preacher comes after you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody runs off with the promoter's girlfriend, yeah. and, you know, all kind of stuff. And um, I mean, that was a, a that to me, dude. I don't know if that was the very first, to my knowledge. I don't know any others, but that was the very first. What would you call it? Inter. What's the word? Uh, inter. Uh, you know, when you what's it called uh interactive Inter interactive experience interactive yeah. <laughs> freaking game analog interactive game you know you yeah. put on the record and play the game and um uh so that was uh the 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 big colorful you know the album folded out twice so yeah. it was like 48 by 48 you had a big old game board yeah exactly <laughs> big old game board and um and then as for the name this is also a good story just that record came out in 1986. That yeah. live album came out around 85, 86, somewhere in there, 85, 86. Uh, probably, no, yeah, 80, I'm going to say 85, maybe. I think Sex Bomb Baby, the compilation came out in 86 or 87, 86, maybe. But that record, I think, came out in 85. And uh, as you know, generic came out in 82 <laughs> i do know and this. Was, i think i know where this is going <laughs> yeah and the generic uh that that the concept of that album cover came from the fact that 
there were generic products available in all the supermarkets. Right. Yes. And there were two different generic designs. The first one that came out was the black on yellow. Yeah, like generic lettering on yellow or something or generic like whatever. The, yeah. <laughs> it would be whatever. Yeah, paper yeah. towels. Yeah. You know, whatever. Just, just a description Beans. of what's inside the package and that's it. Yeah. That's it. And it was a whole line of generic products that were the first design that was came out was that yellow black on yellow black letters on a yellow background that was the first thing and then later on another generic line came out that was blue on white blue white. letters yeah. on a white background same thing beer paper towels whatever it might be yeah you know and uh, so public flipper i mean public image yeah, public released image. an album in 1985 i think I think it was 85. Um, and, and I saw this album cover, you know, and it's like, the, you know, it was the same. It said album on it. Exactly and uh, yeah. that was, you know, they, it was obviously, you know, and it, I mean, I took it like an homage to Flipper. Either that or he didn't care about an homage or whatever, but he wasn't going to copy. He wanted to do the generic concept and he wasn't going to copy the black on yellow. So right. he went with the blue on white generic design but it was a, a copy of what we had done you know i mean yeah. we did the generic album cover design and it was a pretty prior. well-known record frankly like a I very mean... well-known record there's <laughs> no way he didn't know about it yeah yeah come on and um <laughs> so anyhow i was like wow that's cool whatever i wasn't mad at it i was like okay but in my mind i had to answer that because that had to be answered. Of course. You know? Of course. So we had this double record. Question of honor. <laughs> that was ready, but it had no title. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so I came up with the title. I was like, I, I was, the wheels were turning in my head. How can we answer this record? So I came up with Public Flipper Limited, yeah. which worked. <laughs> it was public. It was a live record. Yep. Flipper. It was Flipper. Yep. Limited from 80 to 85 so it all worked you know public flipper limited so uh that was where the title came from yeah that's and great. uh it worked out great <laughs> you know and i think that record came out in 86 if i'm not mistaken yeah yeah that's and uh, the only only person from pil i've had on this show was martin atkins and he was he was already long gone for the band at that point so <laughs> yeah yeah Although i've talked to martin too about his uh his days oh martin's and, a uh, kick man he's awesome yeah yeah He's great. Yeah, yeah. And you know what? He came and played with us on our last tour. Really? In 2019, before the COVID thing, we uh, we played Chicago and invited him to come and play on a second drum kit, nice. which he did. And then um, in Philadelphia, he, he was there for, he was doing a conference or something. He does, yeah, he does a lot he, of like speaking things. Yeah. yeah, and he saw we were playing and he called us up and said hey i want to come do that drum thing again so he came down and we did the same thing and uh yeah so uh and it was great to meet him and chat with him and talk with him and play with him and stuff and so he's a pal now and, and that dude's done a lot of cool stuff but if he had just done flowers of romance you know i mean that's yeah a, that's Man, a pretty good record. drumming on that is amazing <laughs> pretty good yeah uh, some of his some of my favorite drum beats are from him yeah um yeah, I, I mean, I know some of these. They're in my memory, burned into my memory. His drum beats. Yeah. You know, boom, 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 bop. It's bop. 
It's so bah, musical. Boom, boom, yeah, boom, exactly. Boom, boom, <laughs> like, I know that drum beat, man. You just uh, immediately know it. Yeah, too. It's immediately recognizable. Uh, so, okay. So, so, um, all right. So, so that's Public Flipper Limited. Uh, and then you've got, uh, what, there, there's, there's, what, there's blowing chunks. There's a, there's a bunch of other things. I, you know, that's, that's the CBGB yeah. one, right? I only had that one on cassette. Which one? <laughs> uh, blowing chunks. <laughs> yeah, that was a great live record from, uh, from, from CBGBs. Yeah. I th- yeah, I, yeah. Ted, that was a fun experience making that record. We were in, we played CBGBs in November of 83. Right. And uh, it was around Thanksgiving. I think we played like the day before Thanksgiving, I think it was. And uh, we did uh, two shows, two sets on the same night, an early set and a later set, recorded both of them with the plan of, you know, uh, what was the name of that record company? Um, Roar, R-O-I-R, Roar, Reach Out International Records. And at the time, they only put out cassettes. Right. So that was their thing. They only put out cassettes. And At the time, I only listened to cassettes, cassette. so it worked out great for me. <laughs> yeah. And, Sorry, uh, Yeah, so we did all of that. Like, we recorded the day before Thanksgiving. On Thanksgiving Day, we went in and mixed yeah. the record. And, uh, and while we were mixing, Ted was drawing the cover. He just got some blank white paper and some colored pencils. Right. And drew the fish tank and the whole, the you know, it, it was amazing. You know, it was like he, it's, uh, it's a good he cover. sat there while we were mixing and he hand drew everything and hand colored everything. And it came out great looking and the record was cool. And yeah. Well, was that the first appearance of the, of the fish on that one? Or was that no, earlier the on? Fish when had been around on? since day one. Okay. Ted, Ted designed that logo. Just the fish it's a great logo. logo. He designed, he, yeah, he designed that logo. Taught all of us how to draw it because it's, awesome. it's pretty simple, but there's yeah. a way to do it. You know, it starts in the in the it starts with the teeth. You go yeah. up and down, and then you go yeah, like the, uh, up and down, and then you go all around, and uh, you know, and then the X and the fins, and there's a way to do it. And um, and all the fans caught on. They were tagging. All oh, over a, San Francisco and all over tag. the world. Yeah, <laughs> they were they were tagging the flipper fish. Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean that's I mean so that's one of the apparently you know I, I have friends who are graphic designers and stuff. They say like you know one of the rules of a great logo is that you know a ki- a kid should be able to draw it from memory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I was like, oh, that's interesting. You think about these yeah, overcomplicated that's, logos that's where freaking genius logo. Yeah, I it's mean, oh, it's and every yeah if you. Yeah. It's an all-timer for sure. Definitely. Uh so 87 will passes on. Yeah. You know, there's not much to, to, to say there. I think it's that's been adequately covered elsewhere, but I mean that's was was there where where was the band at around that time? What 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 was happening? Well, I don't know. We, uh, I don't know whether the band at that point, we actually, we had toured and we wrapped up our tour with a home show at this club called the I-Beam that year in 87. Oh, yeah, the I-Beam, yeah. And we played the final show before he died about two, three weeks before he died. We played the final show at this club called the I-Beam in, in like November 9th. So it was in November 
we played uh, again. I think it was only two or three weeks prior to when he died, but we played this final show, and I think it was recorded. Somebody recently sent me a link to it. I mean, I've people have been uh, anyway. It's uh, final show we did was in November at this club, and then I don't really know what I know that Will had been thinking about kind of moving on at that period of time when he died at that period during that period that very you know when he died his girlfriend was pregnant with his son <sighs> and uh they were planning on mo- i went to go see him at his he lived in a flat you know an old victorian flat in san francisco i went to go see him when she was pregnant shortly before he died we hung out i think i was I, I stopped in to kind of, you know, just talk to him kind of about what, what was happening with him and with us. And there wasn't any real problems or issues or anything. But he was, since his girlfriend was pregnant, he was thinking about being a family man. And he was going to move out of San Francisco to the, I think, was planned. And he was going to move up into Marin somewhere and raise the kid, you know, outside San Francisco. Yeah. And, um, I don't know, man. You know, uh, we had that one last visit. We talked about stuff. He wasn't saying he was going to quit the band or anything like that, but he was planning on moving out of town, you know, and so I don't really know what his plan was for the future, but um, there was nothing definitive or anything like that. But, uh, yeah, right after, soon after that, I mean, I got a call from Bruce. I think it was on my answering machine. Yeah, it was a. I came home one night and there was a message from Bruce on my answering machine that Will was dead, and you know it, it was real and it wasn't a rumor, and you know he had OD'd and whatever. And then I don't know what to make of this, but years later, I Flipper in one of its incarnations, we were doing a show in San Francisco. And I was, I'm still the guy that runs around and hangs flyers on telephone poles, right. you know. I, <laughs> Nothing I'm changed. still that yeah. guy. <laughs> exactly. And I, I was, uh, Beats Facebook. Fly, I was, I was putting a flyer up on a telephone <laughs> pole for a gig we did sometime in the nineties, I think it was. And, um, this guy comes up to me and it was on, it was on a, a an intersection where there was a history of drug dealing and yeah. junkies and whatever. It was a, very busy intersection so lots of foot traffic so i was hanging my flyers up in this area you know and um this guy comes up to me and he goes hey he sees me hanging the flipper flyer and he goes hey i'm the guy who sold will the dope that killed him and Oof. i'm like fucking hey what am i supposed to do with that information yeah, what, what do you bragging? say to that you're seriously bra- you're, bra- you're bragging to me like you're proud of that shit god like, you know, you need to make it, you had to make, he had to make it known to me that he was the guy, you know, I didn't know what to do with that, man. But anyway, you know, I mean, he that's... made the decision to stick the needle in his arm. Yeah. And he would, the reason he's the classic textbook case of all these guys that OD after being straight for a long time. Right. So yeah. he was, he was straight and sober, meaning he wasn't doing drugs. Right. For a long time. He straightened himself out and all this and 
Uh, I think because he was planning to move out of town and start a new life with his girlfriend and be a dad and the whole nine, I don't know, somebody came by his house or offered him something or whatever, and he chose to do it. And as is always the case, when somebody hasn't been doing something for a long time, Okay. They have no more tolerance. They you lose your, and, yeah, your resistance. In yeah. my mind, yeah. they remember like the dosage, like the last amount that they used. They were used to doing, yeah. And they do that again, and maybe they think, "Ooh, I'm going to get really high this time or whatever," and it fucking kills them. And that's what happens every fucking time. <sighs> so they forget that they have no tolerance, and they're like, "Oh, I used to do whatever, however the amount was. I never did that, so I don't know the vernacular, but." Anyway, you know, the needle and the damage done. Yeah, exactly. It's not a unique story, unfortunately, but it's a not a unique one. story. It's very, you know, typical standard OD story. But yeah, and he, uh, I guess he was by himself, and he, they, his wife mm-hmm. or girlfriend came home and found him laying on the kitchen floor. He had like cooked this drugs over the stove. <sighs> You know, on the flame on the stove, you got to cook it in a spoon. And, uh, oh, that's another funny story. Ted, uh, well, enough of that, right? But here's a funny <laughs> I was gonna, story. I was going to say, there's no way to pivot so for, away from that. For a, yeah. for a while, Ted was living in a, Ted has lived in a couple of different rehearsal studios. Early on, he was living in a rehearsal studio, living in a loft above the studio where yeah. we rehearsed. And then later on, he was living in another studio. Uh, Soundwave, uh, right? It was a uh, no. He was living in a studio called Cap Street Studio. Oh, that's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, so this was fucking funny. I I used to go check on Ted, but see how he was doing. You know, yeah. uh, smoke a joint, hang out, whatever. I checked in on him regularly, um, and um, I go over there this one time. And I, I'm like, I go in there and I'm like, Ted, where's Ted? Yo, Ted, hey, Ted, you know. Yeah. And he comes out from the back of the studio. I think he came out from where the bathrooms were in the back. And he comes walking up toward me. And in his hand, he's got both hands. Or in one hand, he's got a fistful of like four or five different spoons. And they were all black on the bottom, like the various junkies were Ugh. using these spoons to cook heroin and shoot heroin, right? <sighs> and in the other hand, he had an electric drill. And he walked up to me, and I looked at him. In the one hand, he's got spoons. In the other hand, he's got a drill. And I looked at that, and I surmised what he was going to do. And the only thing he said to me, I go, Ted, hey, what's up? And he looks at me, and he goes, fucking junkies. That's all he said. And then I looked at what he was going to drill holes in all the spoons. spoons. (laughs) So that the junkies couldn't Couldn't, use them to cook heroin in (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Ted Falcone, everybody. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Fucking junkies. He was going to drill holes in all the spoons. (laughs) I loved it. How are you going to cook it up now, jerk? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I guess he <laughs> he rounded up all these spoons that were sitting in the bathroom, you know. And then yeah, the yeah, yeah, yeah. Junkies used to go back there and shoot dope or whatever. Can you imagine how pissed they were. <laughs> yeah. uh, so so wild change up. You did, you did American Graffiti with uh, Rick Rubin. Um, yeah, that was great. We've had so many. If I think back on all the different incarnations and all the different 
variations of the band and the different periods of time. They were all fucking great. Yeah. Nothing will compare to the original, but they're all fucking great in their own way. And so Rick Rubin had been a big fan of ours from the early days. He came to see us at CBGB's. He came to see us in the early 80s. He came to see us uh, at various clubs we played in New York, you know. And at the time, he was a student at NYU and the famous story about how he started Def Jam in his dorm yeah, room yeah. and all that. He used to come see us before he started that whole thing, you know. And uh, he was a definite punk fan of punk music and you see he was a, a fixture at cbgb's was literally just a few blocks from nyu nice and it on a in a straight line it was on the same street just two or three blocks away in fact i went with him one night after our show he's like come hang out in the dorm and there was this girl i was chasing named stephanie and he knew her and he's like i know where stephanie is come on i'll take you back <laughs> but uh I don't think we found her. But anyway, I went back with him to the dorms one night. And uh, so, yeah, man, he was a big fan. He was really, a, he came to all of our shows in New York and CBGBs and stuff like that. So when he started Def Jam, it was really a hip-hop thing, yeah. you know, vibe, label. That's what he was doing. And um, so it never occurred to me to hit him up like, what you know, wasn't the thing he was known for? Right, exactly. Yeah. Right. Until, and we were on Subterranean, so we were cranking out our records on Subterranean up through 87. And then uh, when we replaced, I, and, and then when Will died, I never thought for a minute we were going to get back together again. I never thought we would reform, right? But that was at the end of 87 when he died. So 1988 went by, you know, we didn't do anything. Not me, Ted, Bruce. We didn't do anything. 89 rolls around. And at that point in time, I personally decided um, that I needed to go on a road trip and just get out of town and figure out what my next move was going to be. A year had gone by and, you know, none of us had done anything musically. It was a big blow you know to us yeah how could it to not lose be? him like that yeah so um i had a best friend at the time this girl uh named christina and she was my best pal and we used to talk a lot and uh she suggested that we go on a road trip to get out of town you know and you know so we did we jumped in my car it was january of 89 we drove around the whole country we lived in different places for periods of time. We hung out in New Orleans for like three months. We went to, you know, we went to, we drove through Texas. Anyway, on our way from, we left San Francisco. We drove, the first stop was LA. I ran into Rick Rubin. This yeah. was 1989. He had just moved his record label from New York, New York to LA. To LA. Yeah. He actually, sold Def Jam and started a new record label called Def American. And he was just setting up shop in LA in that right around that time period, January of 89. And he was starting to get into rock music versus, I think he had had his fill for the time being of hip hop. And one of his other loves was metal and rock and punk and all that. 
So, you know, he was starting to, starting off that new label with a whole new vibe. And he was recording rock stuff and metal stuff and whatever, producing. And uh, I ran into him at a club and he invited me to come hang with him at a studio the next day. He was producing a record. I forget who it was. It was a metal band that he was doing. And uh, what's the band that had the album called South of Heaven? Uh, Slayer. 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 He was producing Slayer at the time and uh he he played me what he was working on and um we hung out and then we went to a club that night and hung out and then i went on my way you know i there was no flipper at that time so i went on my way and uh i spent eight eight nine months out of that year driving around the united states i stayed in new york i stayed in one of the uh one of the bad brains uh dr no from Bad Brains, I stayed in his apartment in New York for three months. They were on tour and they begged me to stay and watch the place. So I did. And uh, anyway, I had a grand time traveling the country for nine months and had a great time and came back to San Francisco and I, you know, get a call from Ted. I came back just in time for the big earthquake. Oh, yeah, in, the, uh, the Loma Prieta. October. I remember it well, yeah. yeah October, <laughs> I, was, I was back just in time for that and um almost missed it (laughs) and then ted calls me up and he goes hey i got this guy he's a pretty good bass player why don't you come check him out so i go over there and we jam with this dude john 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 uh um spacing on his last name for one second here but uh uh doherty john John doherty was his name and um he looked like kind of a rocker and a biker and, you know, he was a rocker and a biker and built his own Harley from the ground up and all that. And he was a pretty damn good bass player. And so we went, we reconvened Flipper, uh, beginning of 1990. Um, right. yeah, right. January, 1990. I think we did our first show. Uh, and, uh, so then what happened was Bruce went to vocals a hundred percent. Yeah. And John was the bass player, 100%. And so that was the new lineup. And as soon as, and it, it, we played maybe a couple of shows in the early part of 1990, and we cut a single with Subterranean. We cut a, Someday, two right? songs. Yeah. Yeah. And I took that single, and now by this time, Rick Rubin's label was kind of established in LA, you know, now it was 1991, 1990, sorry, beginning of 1990, his labels like established, he's putting out like more rock and metal stuff and he's building his label. Yeah. And, um, it's a known commodity so in the rock him, world. I, yeah. <laughs> I, I sent him the single, you know, and I said, Hey, I mailed it to him. And I'm like, check this out, Rick flippers back together. Check out this, single you know and so he got a hold of me called me up and said you're going to come to la sometime soon i'm like yeah let me know when where i'll come to the show so we booked a show specifically for him to come to it nice and we booked a show in la we come down to la we played the show he came he came up to me after the show he says sounds great man let's do lunch tomorrow and i'll talk to you guys about signing you and i'm like okay so we had lunch with him the next day and uh and he he said i want to sign you guys 
you know, let's do it. Yeah. Um, we'll put out all your old records right. and we'll put out new records. And his plan was to put out first initially generic and then a new record. And then in between the new records, we would put out one of the old ones. So um, that was his thought and his plan. And he wanted me to kind of make it all happen. He pulled me aside and he goes, Steve, you're the only one who can make this happen here. Those guys <laughs> wrangle it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're not going to be able to handle any business. So let's have you handle the business and you got to make all this shit happen, man. We sure, need you yeah. to get into a studio. We need, you got to get a lawyer. We got to do a contract. We need to get you in the studio and you make a new record and you know, we got to let's, so you're the guy that's going to oversee all this. So, um, you know, we, we signed with him. It took us a while. It took us about a year really to work through the contract. We went through a couple of different lawyers that didn't work out and we finally settled on a lawyer and got the contract done, took a long fucking time. And then, uh, Anyway, eventually we got it together, got the deals done, and um, we put out that. It was actually kind of cool. We put out that American Graffiti in 1992. Yeah. No, it was recorded in 92, and it was released January of 93. But it was ready to be released in 92, and they, they decided, the label decided not to compete in the Christmas market, fourth quarter, 92, Christmas. So they said rather than compete with all that let's right. put it out january 93 but um so it was kind of like 10 years right after it you know 10 years after oh yeah generic, yeah yeah okay you know, the re the new record was so that recording process was real fun and being with on his label at that time 90 you know the early 90s that record came out january 93 so let's talk about 93 yeah, his label was the coolest label Pretty prestigious. in the world. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Everyone wanted to be on his label. He yeah. was the he was the man as far as producing and and owning and operating that label. That label was the label everyone wanted to be on. So it, we were there in the pinnacle of his, you know, uh, coolness, cool factor, and yeah. and fame and you know, whatever of that record label. And, wow. um, and that's also, they, we were, I refer to that we, era as the gold rush too. Cause it's kind of seemed like the weirdos were like let in for like a, for like a minute or two. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, like yeah. suddenly maybe there was like a, a window for like weird bands to kind of have this larger type of success more so than there. Yeah. And before. you know, Rick was no matter how famous he got, uh, no matter who he was working with, like, you know, he produced the Chili Peppers. That record yeah. went crazy. <laughs> it did okay, yeah. Sold 20 million <laughs> copies or whatever. He was working with all the big heavy bands in the world, you know. Yeah. Um, and uh, he always loved Flipper, no matter what. Awesome. He loved Flipper. He, you know, he got into, he signed Johnny, uh, Johnny, uh, what's his name? You know, uh, the country guy dressed in black, the man in black. Oh, uh, Johnny uh, Cash. Johnny Cash, right? <laughs> he signed Johnny Cash, revived his career out of nowhere. Absolutely. And put out amazing records with him. Those records and are one, incredible, yeah. One one time we came down to L.A., and I, I used to always call the label and check in, and 
we had a show at a place called the Club Lingerie on Sunset Boulevard, and I called the label, and, he, and they go, oh, yeah, Rick's bringing Johnny Cash to your show tonight. Wow, cool, you know, and then uh, wow. when when our manager delivered the the digital tape, the final mix of our American Graffiti album, uh-huh. when he delivered that final tape to Rick, he went to his house and he delivered the tape, you know, for yeah, that yeah. Would yeah, make the, the record, mix, right? Yeah, exactly, yeah. And Rick had a, yeah, it was a DAT tape, little tiny tape this yeah. big. It's a uh, oh, the digital tape. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, DAT stand for digital audio tape, you know. And uh, anyway, he had a DAT player, obviously, in his house. And he, so the manager told me this story. He knocked on the door. The door opens up. Rick answers the door. He comes in. Mick Jagger's in the living room. And he puts the flipper tape on, and they're jamming. <laughs> Jagger was dancing around the whole living room, and Rick was telling him how Flipper was one of his favorite bands in the world. And I, you know, Rick is, I know that to be true. He's told everybody, no matter who they are, that Flipper's like his favorite band. That's he amazing. introduced me to the one night we met up at an art gallery and uh, he was running around with um, the singer from System of a Down. Oh, yeah. And okay. he, in- he introduced me to that guy. I forget his name, but he introduced me as, you know, the drummer and Flipper, his favorite band, you know. That's um, awesome. And uh, yeah, and so all, all through throughout time, you know, it's um, he doesn't he ain't shy about saying Flipper's one of his favorite bands to no matter who in whatever genre of music, you know. It makes you wonder so, if he uh, brought it up in an outtake of that documentary he did with Paul McCartney. <laughs> What's that again? That documentary he did with Paul McCartney. It makes you wonder if he which, brought it up. <laughs> which one? The one where they were playing songs? Where they're playing the songs? Yeah, together. yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that documentary. <laughs> it was super I watched good. it I loved all it. three parts. Yeah. <laughs> that thing is fucking great. It's cool as hell. Yeah, and you'd see Paul McCartney, however old he is, you see him turn into a teenage kid when he's yeah, talking man. about these songs. Yeah. He's talking about the recording process and the instrumentation and who did what. And you see him like his eyes get big and he turns into a kid again. Like it takes him back to being an 18, 19 year old, 20 year old kid doing all that. And <laughs> it's so cool to see, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. No, that's that, a that, great documentary. I thought that was, that was super cool. And, and, and Rick was um, the right guy to do it. He's the right yeah, type of nerd, sure. right? <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Look, uh, Stephen, I, I, I'd be disingenuous if I didn't bring up the fact that you had a Nirvana uh, in, in your band. We did have a Nirvana <laughs> for a while. In the band, yeah. <laughs> so that when how did that come to be? Uh, that came to be. Oh, so all right. So I'll, I'll try to move quickly here with the no, story. No, no, but it's it, it, nineteen. Time, so we just finished talking about American Graffiti and that mm-hmm. period of time. Mm-hmm. So. In not, we put that record out January 93. We toured the entire year. We went to Europe. We toured the States. It was really great. And then um, the band, the, in fact, the label, they, you know, what they have to do legally, they sign you for one record, but then they have seven, six options, which means you could be on that label for a total of seven albums. Right. It's like right of first refusal, right? Where they you get the sign, you, yeah. you sign for one and then there's they, they put you down for all these options. It's up to them to what they call pick up the option, right? Yeah. So each and, and there's a date 
when they had and Rick screwed up with uh, the Black Rose. I don't know if you know that story. The the Black Rose were were on that label too, yeah. and they put out that first record, "Make Shake Your Money Maker," which mm-hmm. sold seven million albums. Did okay, and okay. they missed the date <laughs> to call the band to pick up their option, right? And so their manager let that date go by, you yeah. know, because. He could renegotiate. Shopping around, yeah, right? exactly. It's a different world and for them now. He yeah. got, he got, he did a killer renegotiation. Boy, he called them up and said, "Hey, you missed that date," and it was like they were free agents at that point. They yeah. could go anywhere, and they had just sold seven million records. They could have made a ton of money anywhere else, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And Rick had to break out his checkbook and yeah. how much you want, you yeah, know. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, exactly. But anyway. <laughs> Anyway, so uh, they had the same deal we had, right? It was one record and then various options. So we had the one deal, and then they did call us in time. We were on the road, and they called me in my hotel room and said, we're picking up your option for the second album. Yeah, We're very happy. Everybody's happy. We love this album. It's doing great. It's selling units. We're picking up your next option. And uh, soon after that, we came home from that tour and I'm sitting at home and I get a phone call that Bruce had been in a horrendous car accident and it was in a pickup truck up. He lived up in the country. Yeah. His, his folks owned land up in the Humboldt County woods out way out in the woods. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Murder mountain. Stuff, and, yeah. <laughs> and he rolled his pickup truck down a mountain or something and was trapped in it for, I don't know how long. And, he sent me a picture of the truck and the whole cab part of the truck was had flattened out, you know, when he was rolling over and he was stuck in there, like twisted around in there and stuff. And I don't know how he got out. It's out in the middle of nowhere. Anyway, his, he broke his back. Yeah. So that was it. It was over, you know, and a year went by and, uh, we we waited for a year to see if he was going to recover from this back injury and uh he never could you know um and so uh i decided in that at that point i was going to move to los angeles and uh i did i moved to la in april of 1995 and um I started a whole new career working in the animation business. I work, got oh. jobs at animation studios, which was out of nowhere and That's awesome. amazing. It was so fun. I worked at Hanna-Barbera Cartoons and then Warner Brothers Animation and not as an artist, but because I had skills yeah, yeah, yeah. The, as, a, as, a, as a management organizer type dude. Because punk rock me. teaches you how to do these things, right? You yeah. got to do it all yourself, <laughs> you man. You have to do yeah. it yourself, so I had exactly. skills, I, and I was the guy that did it. So I had skills doing the business. Yeah, yeah. So I, I was a production assistant, and I was co- and a production coordinator, and I was literally um, keeping uh, – I was I had to corral – instead of corralling some punk rockers, I had to corral artists. <laughs> so I had a corral sure, of yeah. artists that were producing drawings and stuff, and I had to coordinate all of that. And anyway, uh, is a lot. That was all the traditional. That was all two D traditional animation, and there was a lot of paperwork, tons of paperwork, right. lots of drawings on paper. 
Now it's all done on computers. Yeah. On tab tablet. Yeah. But back then it was all paper and colored pencils. Yep. And there was a lot of paper to keep track of. And so uh, that was super fun. My God, it was so fun. Um, and uh, then, it, so that was, I started working in 1995 through 98, 99, 2000. And then I left that business and I started managing bands. And I did that for five years. I managed D.H. Poligro from Dead Kennedys. Oh, yeah, he course. had a solo band called Poligro. It was kind yeah, of a metal I band. Yeah, yeah. I managed his band and a couple of other bands. And um, and I did that for five years. And there's nothing in that. No money whatsoever in that. So anyway, uh, 2005 rolls around. Now it's 10 years since Flippers played a show. Yeah. We get a phone call from CBGB's. I get a phone call from CBGB's asking me if Flipper would be willing to reunite and come and play a couple of shows in New York at CB's. I, they, I remember when this happened. A, yeah. <laughs> yeah. They were doing a series of shows over the course of a number of weeks that it was save CBGB's, right? Because yeah. they were being evicted out of their space after. <sighs> 35 years or yeah. something. Right. And, um, we, I said, yes, you know, I still had to talk everybody into it, but I couldn't say no. Of course. Yeah. So, and I, and so then I called Bruce and Ted and, uh, we didn't have, I convinced them to let's do it. And, uh, we didn't have a bass player. Um, so we got a friend of ours, uh, Bruno, who had been a substitute bass player for us, for years, like there was times when Will couldn't tour with us for whatever reason, or Bruce left us in the middle of a tour for whatever reason, we'd call Bruno and he'd be there. And he was a killer bass player. Anyway, we had him sub with us and we did that show and we did a couple of other shows with him and we played for about a year with him. And then he decided he was going to leave us and move on and do something else. So, we were now we had got the band back together again. We had momentum going. Bruce was was had had some back surgeries now, and he was able to kind of do it again. And so uh, we were back up and running as of 2005 through 2006. We're back up and running, and momentum's happening, and we're being offered shows and stuff. And then Bruno leaves us, and now we've got an offer to play this killer festival in London and no bass player. And it was being curated. This particular festival was called all tomorrow's parties, an annual festival in London. Yeah, and I'm each familiar. year they have a, <laughs> they have a different person curate all the bands. And this particular year it was, um, Sonic youth. Um, uh, what's th his name? Uh, Thurston Moore. Thurston Moore was, was curating the, the, the festival. So Sonic Youth comes through and plays the Fillmore in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. Ted and I go. We go backstage. We talk to Thurston. We go, Thurston, we'd love to play your festival, you know. Yeah. Um, and he's like, oh, man, I'd love to have you guys. Hell yeah. And then I go, but there's one hitch. We don't have a bass player. <laughs> That's small problem. And he yeah. goes, he goes, uh, okay. Well, what are you thinking? And I go, you know what I'm thinking, man. I'm thinking Chris Novoselic. 
And he goes, oh, man, that'd be perfect. He goes, I'll call him for you. So Bad. Thurston Moore called Chris <laughs> and talked to him and pitched him the idea, you know, told him about the festival and Flipper and everything. And then Thurston called me a day or two later and he goes, hey, man, I talked to him. He's into it. He wants to do it. I gave him your number. He's going to call you. So he did. You know, Chris called me a day or two after that. And he, he goes, man, he goes, it's an honor to be asked by you guys. to." He goes, nobody ever asked me to play. At that point in time, which is crazy because he's like such a great bass player, you know, and he he had gone through a a solo act that he did after Nirvana called Sweet 75, I think. Right. Yeah, there was a couple of different things he did and, you know, didn't go anywhere. And and he kind of let it be. I don't know, whatever did these things didn't work out. So. He said he was honored to be asked by us, and he told me that he was a huge fan. Nirvana was a huge, had been huge yeah. fans, and you know he had listened to Generic, you know, numerous times, and just loved that record. Thought it was, you know, you know, art. And he's and, got that um, that kind of loping style, anyway. Like it's sort of like he's yeah. like a perfect fit as a player, like fame notwithstanding, yeah. like great fit. Yeah. So he agreed to do that festival with us. For starters, that's all yeah. he agreed to do. So we rehearsed with him and we flew out. Well, I thought to myself, I'm the business guy. So I thought to myself, we're going to go out there. And the Melvins were playing that festival also. Yeah. So I thought to myself, hmm, it doesn't make sense for me to go out there just for one fucking show, yeah. one night, one show, even though it was a great event. Great. Awesome. That's the foundation of a tour as far as I'm concerned. We should book more shows and do more shows, at least in the UK or whatever. Man after my own heart. (laughs) So we ended up booking, we booked several more shows with the Melvins, and we did a few shows on our own, and we ended up going to Ireland. We played shows in the UK and Ireland. We ended up doing about 10 shows altogether yeah. throughout the UK and Ireland, London. We played London with the Melvins. And um, so it, it turned out to be a fantastic kind of excursion and adventure and experience. And we played that opening Friday night at that festival. There was uh, an electronic band from Germany that opened up. Then came Flipper. Then came the Melvins. Then came Sonic Youth. Then came Iggy Pop. So that was the one Pretty stage good. Yeah. The opening night it was great, right? And um, by the way, Mike Watt was playing bass with with the Stooges. The Stooges. I remember when that Andy happened and too. And yeah, so you know that was really cool. And so um, we did that tour with him. We came back to uh, the states, and he's the one who said, "Hey, this was a lot of fun." we should try writing some new material together. And uh, so we carried on and we worked out a rehearsal schedule where he came down, we had a studio in Oakland and then we would go up to his place in Washington state on his property. And we go back and forth, rehearse down in Oakland, up in his place. And we go back and forth and alternate, you know, and his place was amazing. It was like band camp. It was great. We'd go up there for about a I'm week sure, at a yeah. time. And his wife was a lovely woman and she was an amazing cook and she would cook us breakfast, lunch and dinner. And we would just 
work in this he had a a music room above his garage and uh you know we set up shop and we wrote songs and um we did some shows up there in the area in seattle and um we brought jack and dino in yeah who was a well-known engineer awesome awesome engineer yeah Yeah, he he did bleach he was the engineer on their first album bleach on sub pop he was like the sub pop guy up there he recorded all those so many bands up there yeah yeah right so we brought him in and he brought his recording gear down and we recorded in his garage above his garage and he set up mics everywhere and he put the mixing board down in the garage and uh, ran all the mic cords up the stairs to the room above, and he recorded. Yeah, he, we recorded a couple of live shows and you know the studio tracks in his garage, and a couple of live shows up there. One in Portland, one in Seattle. And we ended up releasing a live record and a studio record. Yeah. Um, and uh, we're gonna reissue those. We just got the rights. Oh, cool! Awesome. Re- the rights. The rights reverted back to us. And I, I've got them sitting in boxes in my whatever was left over, you know, after the deal ended and the right. rights reverted back to the record company sent us what was left, what they had left over. And so I have them here and we're going to um, sell these on our website, on our merch flipper web store. Oh, good. But then we're awesome. going to we're going to reissue the album on on a record label. So it'll be, you know, available um, in record stores and stuff. So. This year, we're going to get all of the Flipper catalog reissued. Nice. Um, nice. That's awesome. So that period of time with him was really fantastic. Lasted two years. And uh, at the end of that two-year period, um, he just, you know, decided that it had run its course. And, you know, we accomplished what he wanted to accomplish with yeah. us, you know, do, doing shows and making these records and so at that point in time, he was kind of wanted to move on. And that's when you... He, at that point, he was getting really interested in politics. He, he and, Yeah, he had that whole direct democracy, uh, uh, um, uh, yeah. that initiative process thing he, was, he really wanted to do. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, yeah. He ended up going back to college and took some courses, and he was getting into um, politics and local politics where he lived is where he started everything and so anyway so but it was a great two years with him and then oh my god so Ra- i think that then it, rachel was uh, from Frightwig, right yeah was, after, after um christ which was two and we ended with him around two in 2008 sometime and then 2009 we had an offer to go play australia new zealand yeah awesome and we grabbed Rachel. We knew her forever. She's awesome. She I mean, she's a killer, great player. player. Yeah. <laughs> Friend of ours. She had been a roommate of mine for years, and we all lived in a big house together. Even Ted lived there in San Francisco. We all lived in this big old two-level Victorian house. And uh, anyway, so yeah, we knew Rachel, and she had come from Frightwig and Mud Women, and two different bands she was in that yeah. I knew about. Uh, and there were other bands she was in also. She was in a band called Dog, I think, or God or Dog or something. Oh, and yeah, 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 yeah. G-O-D or D-O-G, I forget which. And um, 
anyway, so yeah, so we grabbed her up. We went to Australia, New Zealand. We toured with her. And um, then in 2012, we went to Europe with her. Um, then in 2015, we had an offer to go play in um, Europe, in Italy. And uh, Bruce couldn't go. His, you know, even though he, his back injury is, it's degenerative. So no matter yeah, what he did, he had better. a couple of surgeries that they fused uh, discs together in his back and stuff with steel rods and all this, but it helped temporarily, but his condition is degenerative. So no matter what, it's always going to get worse. Yeah. So he was at a point where the pain was too much for him to continue. And so 2015, we had this offer to go to Italy and I, I, I wanted to go to Italy. Yeah. Why? So yes. <laughs> I, 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 the, every, I called Bruno and he was all into it. Ted was into it and we needed a singer. So I happened to go to a show in LA. I went to go see Chrome. There right. was an old San Francisco band called Chrome. I, I've had Helios Creed on this show. I know Kukonis. Helios yeah. Creed, right. <laughs> so I forget if it was Helios or if it was Chrome, but either way, I went to go see them play in L.A. Yeah. And they had another, they had a bass player that with them at the time that was a friend of mine. And he actually called me up and said, hey, I'm playing tonight with Helios or Chrome or whatever. You want to come down? I'll put you on the guest list. So I went down and... During one of the songs, they brought up a guest singer, and it was David Yao. David Yao. And I looked at that. I watched it, and I was like, wow, man, that dude's cool. He'd be great in Flipper. So I got called my buddy, and I said, hey, I got to get that singer's name, that guy that came up, David Yao. He got, he got me his phone number, and I called him. And he was like, wow, man, three shows in Italy? Hell yeah. And he was a fan of Flipper. Yeah. And, you know, he was like, this would be great. Yeah, I love Flipper. So we rehearsed a couple times, and we went and played those three shows in Italy. And we had a blast, and we came back and decided to carry on with him. So here's what's funny, uh, Steve. So episode 64 of this show, this is now episode yeah. 295, was with uh, David Yao when okay. he threw in with you guys. So I, I I talked to him in real time as that like you know as that was all coming together, and I've as since had another happening. episode that I think is probably a better episode with him. Not that like about a year ago or something along those lines, but it's awesome to hear both sides of this because this is someone that yeah. this is for the longtime listeners that like remember hearing that story. He in was great. He right? was so much fun and he was great. Great energy. Uh, so you didn't know Jesus was, Lizard or Scratch Acid though. At the time, you weren't familiar with those bands, I was, really. I, I I wasn't super familiar with them. No, yeah. I knew the names. I knew their names. I hadn't seen either one of them play live, but I knew their names. That's I, awesome. Uh, Jesus Lizard, you know, was huge, and I heard. Yeah, yeah. I've heard. I had heard of Scratch Acid too, um, but and I, I always loved that name, Jesus Lizard too. They were great, and I, I watched video. I went on YouTube yeah, you and can, watched video exactly of you, them performing and stuff. But I had never had the opportunity to see them live for whatever reason. I mean, but, for, uh, for was, me, David Yao is fun. David Yao is like sorry to interrupt, but is is like for me one of the the great front people of all time. It's like him, like Iggy Pop, like Shannon Selberg from the Cows. There's a very s small and rarefied list of like, oh my yeah. god, these people are 
next and, level. And, you know, a weird story. Have you ever heard of a band called, uh, they they were, they came to L.A. Rod, do you know who Rodney Bingenheimer yeah, is? Yeah, of course. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Rodney, Rodney Bingenheimer is... His, he has a reputation for discovering bands. Yes, yes. So uh, he discovered this band from Greece, and they were called, uh, oh, my God, I'm spacing on their name, female front singer. Her husband was on guitar and a bass player and a drummer, four-piece band. Um, hmm. Oh, Barbed Wire Dolls, they were called. Oh, okay. So sure. they, they came, he discovered them. He brought them to L.A. from Greece. He put them, they did a big showcase at the Roxy in L.A. And uh, anyway, they, they hung out in L.A. for years, and they toured the States for years, uh, all because of Rodney bringing them yeah. out. They had a, you know, they built an audience and everything. And it wasn't real. And, and so I went to one of their shows at the Whiskey. And uh, I went backstage to say hello to them, right? And I was so, you know, impressed. Being from Greece, I had no idea how well they spoke English. They, uh, you, you could go either detect, way, yeah. <laughs> you, you could not detect any kind of accent. It sounded like they grew up in L.A., oh, wow, you know, wow. California. They had perfect, perfect English with no accent whatsoever. Very intelligent, very cool people. Anyway, I was talking to the guy, the lead guitar player in the band, and I was telling him at the time, during whatever period of time it was, that we didn't have a singer, and we were looking for a singer. This was before we got David Yao. And um, in fact, I think I was looking for a singer specifically for the Italy shows or whatever. Right, yeah, and yeah. I was <laughs> just bouncing it off everybody I talked to, like, any ideas, any ideas, any yeah, ideas? Yeah. I talked to him, and I go... This is in the dressing room at the Whiskey, the Whiskey A Go Go in L.A. I go, hey man, yeah, we got this thing, and I need a singer, and like, got any ideas, man? And he goes, dude, he goes, you should get David Yao. <laughs> and I, he goes, if anybody could do it, David Yao could do it. You know, he was one of my favorite singers, and he could do it. You know, mm -hmm. and then I, I didn't, I couldn't, I couldn't have picked him out of a lineup. I didn't know what he looked like. Yeah. And then I, I, again, after that, I went to that show for Chrome or whatever and saw this guest singer come up. And all, lo and behold, it's David Yao. So, um, all came together. I couldn't, <laughs> I, I couldn't wait to go back and tell that guy, we got David yeah, yeah, Yao. Exactly. Hey, dude. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> so uh, everything we did with him was great. We did just those three shows in 2015. And then it wasn't until 2019 that we really decided to get flipper back together again and just fucking do it, you know, right. like get out and tour and play and go places. And I, I called him up to ask him first, you know, and yeah. we had lunch together and um, I said, look, here's what we're planning. Would you be interested in doing any of this? Like yeah. whatever you want to do one show, three shows, whatever you want to do. And he looked at the whole plan that I had for the whole year. He's like, I want to do all this. Right. <laughs> so I'm like, and at that time it was the 40th anniversary. That's what yeah. it was. 40th yeah. anniversary. So we figured we'd go out and tour everywhere we could go, you know, celebrate the 40 years. So, you know, he had a job. He's got a cool job where he designs billboards for movies, yeah. you know, like big movie billboards. And, um, 
And he's also he's acting, got, and he's good at it. That's a he, that's the thing. Yeah, he's freaking good he's at it. He's got a multi. <laughs> yeah, he's got he's got uh, careers going in three yeah. different things. Um, so anyway, he uh, got the time off work he needed, and um, we toured the states. We went to Europe, and you know, pretty much most of the year we stayed busy with him, and he'd go back to work on and off. But you know. When he, you know, he he arranged to have the time to go do these yeah. shows and tours with us. So um, anyway, it's fucking great, man. One of the greatest memories I have: we were doing a show in Germany. Mm-hmm. This particular club had a low ceiling, and there were like water pipes and stuff uh, that were exposed. Yeah, <laughs> okay, and, sure. Uh, yeah, I, I I'm playing the drums right, and I had my head down, and I look up, and I see David Yao. Right in front of the stage, there was a right. The audience was right there, and yeah. it was a low stage, and audience was right there, and there was this water pipe or something just above the stage. He had somehow gotten up there, and he hooked his feet around the pipes, Fantastic. and he was hanging like a bat upside down <laughs> with the microphone. <laughs> so I'm I'm playing like this, and I look up and I see him hanging upside down, yeah. singing the song, right, <laughs> hanging like a bat. And that was the greatest thing I've ever seen, man. That was like, I, I can't imagine another sight that was like, I've never seen a singer do that before. I, like, I saw it was amazing. I saw the Jesus lizard at the bottom of the hill, and okay. uh, he crowd surfed out for an entire song, sang the entire song, crowd surfing out. They kind of veered yeah. over to the merch table. He ended up in the T-shirt box. Where he wow. sang like the last half of the song and then eventually got out of the t-shirt box. But thing is, didn't miss a note the entire time. Like was like dead That's on. Awesome. The, and it was, it, I mean, that was like this guy's my favorite, my favorite front man ever. I yeah, yeah, guy. yeah. He's great as a front man. <laughs> he's got a lot of energy. He's all over the place, crowd surfing. Yeah, yeah. He's everywhere. He's he's really good. He's a sweetheart of a dude too. Nice, nice fellow. Yeah, nice fellow. For uh, sure. Yeah, I saw a couple of those shows. Uh, I, I, I was still living in the Bay. I, so I live in Milwaukee now, but I'm from Oakland, and I saw the. Okay. Uh, I, I got the T-shirt. Even I saw the shows. Got okay. the T-shirt uh, uh, cool. with 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 the bottom of the hill ones, and uh, it was it was real real cool. To see that that was a that was a uh, two great tastes that taste great together is what I usually call that kind of thing. Yeah, <laughs> we did our final show with him at the bottom of the hill. We yeah. this last December we did. Uh, a series of five shows to kind of wrap it up with him yeah. and uh, he's moving on to do other things. But anyway, um, uh, the final show was New Year's Eve. Um, That's right. Yeah. I was at bo- bottom of the hill. Yeah. That was pretty every, fun. Every once in a while I'll get kind of sad that I, I'm not there anymore. And like those kinds of things are definitely like, Oh yeah, that'd be cool to be able to go to that. Instead of like being in Milwaukee where it's like snowed in or some, <laughs> something like that. Like, yeah. oh, that sounds a lot cooler than what I'm doing. Watching, uh-huh. tr- you know, trading places on cable or something. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, well, how'd you how'd you end up in Milwaukee? Cost of living, man. Okay, but I mean, how did you choose Milwaukee? Oh, just from tour. I just had a lot of uh, friends out here from tour. Always had a great time in Milwaukee. It's a it's a cool, cool. underrated American city. Uh, it's well uh, placed. You can get to a lot of cities easily to play. Okay. Um, yeah. You know, the people are generally, you know, pretty cool. Like I, I, I dig it here. It's, it's cool. Cool. Uh, so that kind of takes you up to, uh, you know, you're doing these shows with to, to the present with Fletcher, um, you know, Watts. Oh yeah. So, well. so in, uh, in December, as I mentioned, uh, 
we what started the idea of doing five shows uh, to with David Yao, we got an offer to play. We actually were offered the whole tour, but we couldn't do it. But the, this band called The Garden called us up and said they were big fans of ours and they wanted to, they invited us to do this tour. We couldn't do it, but they did. They called us, you know, and said, how about doing the last two shows? Or it was actually just one show at the Fonda Theater in oh, Hollywood. Cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like a 1,200 capacity I was going to say a big place, theater. yeah. <laughs> beautiful, beautiful place. I love that venue. But anyway, um, that show sold out. They <laughs> They added a show that sold out in like five minutes. So we had two sold out shows that they offered us to play. And then we ended up adding the two shows in uh, San Francisco at the bottom of the hill. And then we added another show at Alex's bar in Long Beach. So anyway, we did a total of five shows with David Yao. But so the Alex's bar was the warm up show. And then we did the two sold out shows at the Fonda with the garden. Right. So, Another band I wasn't familiar with, but I looked them up on YouTube and the fact that they had invited us to come play with them was really enough. You know, it was yeah. like I wanted to do it. So we, I talked to Rachel and David and Ted and we all decided, yeah, we'll, we'll do these shows. And um, so we played with them and they were, they, 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 you know who they are, the the Garden, they're two twin brothers. Yeah, it's brothers. two brothers. It's like Sparks, well, not like Sparks, but yeah, they're brothers. Yeah, that's <laughs> it. It's two guys. That's it, yeah. right? And one guy plays drums, the other one sings, and then they they mess around. They have recorded tracks and stuff going on. So the drummer, Fletcher, jumps off the drums at one point, and he yeah. starts singing, and his brother, Wyatt, goes and plays guitar, and and they've got, you know, they, they put on this whole show and they're huge with the youngsters, right? Yeah. Uh, teenagers are their fan base. And so we were in front of a brand new audience, all young teenagers, like 13 to 19. And they were really enthusiastic. They loved us. They, they were jumping all over the place and it was great to play in front of a new audience, you know, Sure, yeah, they, those guys, the two guys, Wyatt and Fletcher, they came, they wanted to play a song or we invited them to come and play one song with us. And they chose brainwash. Nice. That was their, nice. That's the closest thing we got to hardcore. I was, I, I was going to say fast, that. Fastest, <laughs> it's a 30 second song and it's super fast. Yeah. And yeah. That, you know, yeah, yeah. so they came and performed that with us. We had two drummers and Wyatt was on guitar and, you know, David sang. So anyway, it was really cool and really fun and, um, became friends with them. They're the nicest guys you'd ever want to meet their whole family, their whole crew. Everybody's like their dad is the drummer in, uh, an orange County band. Um, I'm spacing on the name, but it's an OG band from back in the eighties and came out of orange County. Really? Okay. Uh, yeah, um, I, I, for, I don't know why I'm spacing on their name, but uh, it'll come to me. But anyway, um, they grew up listening to punk and being fans of punk rock. And, sure, yeah. You know, and they invited us to do these shows, and it was super fun. So, uh, so that was December, and then um, what? What caused? Oh, we we wanted to keep playing, and we still again we're out without a singer. So. Um, 
I happened to be texting with our booking agent and I said, his name is Landon. I go, Landon, I'm texting with him, right? I'm yeah. like, Landon, we got to find a singer, man. You got any ideas? Blah, 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 blah. And he goes, wait a minute. I'm texting with somebody right now. Let me ask him. How funny. He happened to be texting with Fletcher at the same time ah! I'm texting him. <laughs> okay. And, and uh, he was talking to Fletcher. I think he was helping him book some of his other solo band. He's got another band called Puzzle, where it's just okay. a one-man band. And I went to see them play a couple times, and he's great. you know. But anyway, uh, he asks him if he'd be interested in singing with Flipper, you know, and, and he said, yeah. Of course, yeah. <laughs> so he said yes to a certain number of shows because he's also <laughs> busy with his other stuff. So um, as it turns out, we're going to do two shows with Fletcher, one in San Francisco next Thursday, the 26th of May. Nice. We're playing the Great American Music Hall. One of my favorite venues. Vocals. Love and it. then we're... Huh? What's that? Uh, it's one of my favorite venues. I love the Great American Music Hall. It's a great place. Beautiful venue. Yeah. Fantastic. I love that venue. Another 100-year-old, you know, beautiful, classic San Francisco venue. And um, uh, so we're doing that with him. And then we're going to play a festival in Oakland with him on July 2nd. Yep. And we're going to try to, you know, do some more shows with him. We'll see what happens. But um, we're also going to experiment. We have a European tour. It's, you know, it's difficult, man. It, it's very frustrating looking for singers all the time. Um, <laughs> hey, you wouldn't think you would have this problem. So, but yeah. <laughs> but good ones are hard to find. Well, we've, yeah, I mean, it's like, you know, it's like a marriage. You've got to find somebody that you get along with and yeah, they man. do the job right and all this. There's so many factors that go into it. Yeah, it was perfect, you know. Um, Novoselic was perfect on the bass. You know, every time we've had brought in a new person, they, they fit in and they were perfect and it worked for however long it yeah. worked for, you know? And, um, I'd say singers are the most difficult, um, because that's your front person <laughs> and whatnot. So, right. you know, after Fletcher, I, you know, I, I, we've, I've talked to different people. There's a bunch of people that are interested and we're probably going to try out some other front, sing, yeah. you know, lead singers, um, down the line. But we just, you know, I, I was consulting with, Mike Watt, I was emailing back and forth with him. I was asking him for ideas and um, I'm, I'm asking everybody I know for ideas, you know, who can we approach uh, to be the next singer or guest singer or whatever. Right. And, you know, he hits me back at one point in time and he goes, Hey, have you ever thought of, he goes like, you know, no pressure or nothing. Like, I don't care one way or the other. He goes, but maybe I could sing. Yeah, I mean so, that's what he does um, in his bands, right? <laughs> I, 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 you know, he, we, we have him play with us all the time. Yeah, when yeah, we flip, sure. We bring in uh, Mike Watt and his missing men to play with us here and there. You know, yeah. He played with us in San Francisco at one of those last shows we did, and he played in Long Beach with us. And you know, I've seen him play bass and sing. You know, and he's great. And so I was like, hmm, I wonder if that will work. Well. Let's give it a try, you know. Yeah, so yeah. we're gonna go tour Europe with him on bass. It's gonna be a That's trio. Awesome. I love so that. we're gonna give that a shot and see what happens. Um, 
Flipper as a trio, that'll be interesting. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> we'll see what happens, you know. I mean, I think down the line it's, you know, maybe we should maybe have a singer because it's a whole new element of, like, somebody that can run around on the stage and crowd surf and do all that, which he can't do. He's got to stay. Yeah, he's he's got to stand in one spot. Bass is pretty important, bass. yeah. As we've established earlier, talking about Ted's guitar, the bass is pretty important. <laughs> yeah. So we'll see what happens, you know, if it works. it'll Hopefully it'll work in the context of what it is. It, hopefully it'll work, and then we'll see what happens down the line. But uh, Well, by the way, um, Steve, I appreciate that because as someone – who like writes songs, plays guitars and sings, but really I identify as a front man. It is a separate set of skills. It's a yeah, separate it set of skills. And like, yeah, there are great singers that are not great front people. And there are great front people. that are not great singers too, but it's, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's, but then there's still, there are people who can do both. Do, it, do both. They do it all, you know, and they, yep. and they make it work, you know? Yep. 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 But I mean, but, if you're, uh, if, if there's anyone that could pull off a three-piece flipper, it's Mike Watt, man. Mike Watt's a badass. That guy is a force of nature, that dude. He is. He's great. He's fantastic. Um, and he's got fans all over the world. And Yeah. I mean, he I, played I, in the I, Stooges. I, 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 love playing, I love playing with him. Like, we toured uh, in 2019. We toured with him on bass. Rachel couldn't yeah. make it. We toured with him on bass with David Yao. And um, we did a couple, two, three weeks in Europe. And uh, he was great to play with, man. You know, as a drummer and your bass player, mm. that's supposed to be the rhythm section. So your drums and bass are supposed to be locked. Yes. And he gets that and I get that. And he's the only bass player I've ever played with that had that attitude. Like the bass and drums need to be locked. That's his so thing, he man. Would, yeah. <laughs> he, would, he stood right next to me yeah. on that tour in Europe. He stood right next to me, right next to my hi-hat to my left, right an inch from my hi-hat, there was Mike Watt. And we looked at each other. He made sure that our the bass and drums were locked. And then at the end of every song, he gave me a little fist bump. And that was so cool, man. That's it so was so fun and cool. <laughs> what a great guy. We did the, yeah, the little fist bump at the end of every song. I love that. That's that amazing. Fun, yeah. It was cool. Well, Stephen, I'm so glad you took the time to uh, talk to me about all things Flipper. This, this has been yeah. lovely. This has been amazing, man. We we went through the whole history up to the we, present we, day. We actually did. <laughs> uh, I mean, we didn't tell every story. No, but, you know, how could millions we? Millions of those, right? Right. But right. we covered everything generally, you know. So, so last thing. Uh, yeah. And, and and I want to thank you so much for your time, and I, I appreciate you taking no the time problem. to do it. But uh, it's I enjoyed a, it. I, I, the only canned question I ever ask folks when they come on this show, and you can yeah. choose to interpret it however you like, but why do you do what you do? Pretty simple, really. It's uh, from the time I was a teenager. Well, I mean, I had an older sister that I grew up with, and you know, she had a radio in her room, and I could always hear the radio coming out of her room. She was like seven years older than me, so... You know, when she was listening to the AM radio and the, the Beatles were, you know, were half all over right. the radio and, and other bands of that ilk in that time period in mid to late 60s, mid 60s, you know, mid 60s, 60, you know, I, shit. Uh, I started 
I started digging music from the time I was probably, I don't know, 10, 11, 12 years old. You know, I'm hearing the Beatles coming out of her room and all the other Paul Revere and the Raiders. I mean, I could name all these bands that I used to, you know, that came were coming out of the radio. And, um, and then there were even TV shows. The Beatles had a cartoon I used to watch. And the Monkees had a show on TV when I was growing up, right? And uh, so... Uh, you know, I don't know. Music just struck me like it was something I always was interested. It was I was drawn to it, and um, from a young age, I I wa- I think for some reason I I wanted to play drums. Drums seemed like the thing I wanted to do, and um, I was a young kid in grammar school. And this one particular summer, they were offering music lessons. I mentioned like. I took guitar lessons and drum lessons this one summer and I loved, we were playing the drums on our wooden desks with rat, you know, we were learning. Yeah, 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 yeah. Awesome. Yeah. And there was the drum teacher brought in his drum kit. We would take turns playing the drums and learning beats. And I, I, I was drawn. I loved it. I, I thought that was something I could do. Guitar was too complicated piano was too complicated for me but drums was easy i just had to keep a rhythm so it came easy to me and uh so i was really drawn to that and uh from the time i was a teenager i remember i had a a garage band when i was 13 14 i had a garage band i was on a swim team and these kids from my swim team one guy played keyboards i played drums another guy played bass you know, um, so I had a little garage band. Um, my cousin also was some years older than me, and he actually came to my house one day and talked my mom into buying me a drum kit. And he had bought a bass guitar from a pawn shop. My mom gave us money. We went to a pawn shop. We bought me a cheap set of drums for $70. And we set up and we put on a stack of old blues records and we learned to play from old blues albums. Um, he learned the bass notes and I learned the drum beats and it was pretty easy to figure out. Blues is pretty easy to play, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that's how I started. And then I had a stereo in my bedroom and I had a drum kit. I'd put headphones on and put on my favorite albums, Led Zeppelin, you name it. I'd play along to them. And, you know, I kind of I just taught myself and um, had my little garage bands and jam with my cousin. And then when I got to be, you know, I did that through my early teens up through 18 years old. And then around uh, I moved out of my parents' house and got a job. And I did that for about a year. I did. I wasn't near. This was like when disco was came into vogue. And there were disco clubs and stuff. And um, I wasn't playing. I moved to San Jose from San Francisco and I was just working a job every day and just living, learning how to live on my own, you know, for the first time. And then at the end of that year, I decided, okay, I want to be in, I want to do music. That's what I want to do. And I quit my job in San Jose. I moved back in with my parents and I, I, got a draw I went to I had I had money now from a job I went to guitar center and bought a real proper drum kit 
and it's I still own it to this day. I bought a beautiful pearl drum kit, all brand new Zildjian cymbals. I paid twelve hundred bucks, I remember, for the kit, and um, now I've got a real drum kit. And um, I started jamming with various people in San Francisco. Just there was a place called the Musician Switchboard, and you could go list yourself as a musician or looking for a band or a band looking for music, yeah, yeah. you know, and, and people would call you and go blah, 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 whatever. So I had people come and jam with me in my parents' garage. And I, you know, I learned how to play like in a band setting, you know, with, and then I discovered punk rock. Uh, and then I discovered the Mabuhai and I started going there. And, um, I, one of the first bands I saw, well, the, second band I ever saw there the first band was like a metal band I saw the second band I saw there was uh, a band called Negative Trend and I thought it was the craziest thing in the world I'd ever seen the, the singer was this like six foot plus tall skinny guy and he was jumping all over the place he was climbing up on the PA speakers and diving off the speakers and landing on his knees. And I'm like, how's he doing that? And then he went out into the audience. There wasn't too many people there. It was like a midweek, you know, and he, there were these little nightclub tables and chairs and he grabbed this one guy out of the chair and smashed the chair over the table. And he went and grabbed another guy and smashed the chair over the table. And I had two simultaneous thoughts. I thought, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen. And these guys ain't getting paid tonight. Those are the two simultaneous, you know, and I'm sure I, you know, I was right on both right, counts. Probably right on both counts. Yeah. Yeah. And then lo and behold, I, the next band I went to see was the Avengers. Great fucking band. One of the best ever Penelope on vocals and Jimmy will Jimmy Wilkes Wilkins, Jimmy Wilkins, who later joined Chris Isaac and, mm -hmm was responsible for that guitar sound that Chris Isaac had, but he was the bass player in the Avengers and everybody, you know, this was all at the Mabuhai gardens and it was like a clubhouse and everybody was approachable. And, um, I went up to him and I go, Hey man, I've been coming to this club. I've seen you play. How do I go about getting into a band? And he told me exactly how to do it. He said, go to Aquarius records, they got a bulletin board. You put up a little card, you know, a little thing and drummer looking for punk band and your phone number. That's all you got to do. I did it. And I got a phone call from Will Shatter, who was in negative. This was the very first version of negative trend. And he calls me up. He goes, I'm in this band negative trend. And we're auditioning new singers and new drummers. I go, hey, you play great. He goes, yeah, the summer, the singer quit and we fired the drummer and we're auditioning new people. So I went down, I auditioned and I got the gig playing drums with them. So that was the second version of Neg Trend, Negative Trend. We did that classic EP with four songs yeah, yeah, on yeah. it that is a classic. Everybody loves it. Henry Rollins told me he got a hold of that and loved it. Very influential, on uh, you know, for him and... Um, so anyway, that's my first band, Negative Trend, in 1978. And um, so, oh, I even, at that time, I'm still living in my parents' garage. And 
I brought negative trend over to rehearse in my parents' oh, garage. Wow. And many years later, that we were, my dad passed away. We were selling the house, and the neighbors were who had been there forever were coming across the street saying hello, goodbye, nice, you know, whatever. And they brought it up to me. They're like, remember that band you used to jam with in the garage? I'm like, yeah. I'm thinking they're going to tell me it was loud and obnoxious, but they were like, that was really good, man. That <laughs> band was really good. That's awesome. <laughs> you guys were great, you know? And uh, anyway, so uh, I remember bringing DOA back. I went and saw them play at the Mabuhai one night. I'm still living in my parents' garage. Uh, I brought them. They didn't had nowhere to crash, and I brought them back to, and snuck them in, and they yeah. all crashed in the garage and stuff, and then they stuck out in the morning. Uh, but anyway, uh, yeah. So I don't know. For me, it was like something I had to do. I don't know. It was like I gravitated toward it. I did make up my mind. This is something I want to do. Mm-hmm. So rather than pursue just regular jobs or whatever, I decided after being – out of the house for a year, working a regular job, living my life, paying my bills, doing all that. I'm like, you know what? I really want to play music. So San Francisco was the place to do it. And uh, that's where I, you know, it, it was the right spot. So that's how it happened for me. Love it. Yeah. Steven, thank you so much, man. This has been a pleasure. All right, Conan. Thank you so much, dude. This was great. All right. Until next time, man. Good job. I love your podcast. Good work. Thanks, bud. All right. We'll talk to you soon, man. Bye-bye. See ya. Bye, everybody. Oh, there he goes. Steven DePace. What an awesome guy. Uh, Let's play it on a song. Y'all know what I'm going to play. You know what I'm going to play.
Well, well then, that was Sex Bomb. In case you couldn't tell, one of the most famous punk rock songs in the uh, history of rock and roll. That's what that was. And that was Stephen DePace. And I thought that was a pretty darn good time, if I do say so myself. Uh, of course, that's off Generic Flipper. You can find all things Flipper in the world at large, if you're in it, because they're an iconic band. <laughs> uh, there's a Facebook group. There's a... Um, yeah, I mean, there's, they're reissuing all the records and stuff. It's, uh, what can I say, man? That dude's an icon. That's, uh, really cool to talk to him. The name of the show is Conan Neutron's Protonic Reversal. Thank you very much for listening to it. This show airs Thursdays, 8 Eastern, 7 Central, 6 Mountain, 5 Pacific. Redonope.com. Twitch, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, whatever I feel like, frankly. Uh, if you like the show and you want to get episodes sooner, $1 a month, patreon.com slash patroncoversal will get you there. But the archives are always free. Patroncoversal.com. No ads, no sponsors, no kidding. Thank you for everyone subscribing to the YouTube channel. It's the time of this recording it's uh just shy of a thousand and uh that's great because i only put it up on youtube about a year and a half ago so that feels great thank you very much lots of good things coming up stay tuned to it also yeah thanks for thanks for the support i read the comments i read the emails appreciate appreciate you Sound into Lots of good stuff coming up. Catterwall people too. Catterwall. Can you hear me now? Anyway, stay safe out there. Out on Route 128. And take it easy. And lonely. I got my radio on. Can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? to my top 10.
like to thank our sponsor. But we haven't got a sponsor. Not if you were the last man on earth. She was prepared to prove it. This one goes out to a special girl. if there's no one there to receive. It's the end of radio. As we come to the close of our broadcast day, Can you hear me? 